This podcast is brought to you by CDKeyOffers.com. Use offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And as I always do, you know, let's just jump right into it. I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? All right. Uh, I'm Keith Kadera, and I am a, an artist in the industry. I've been doing this for a quarter century. I've, uh, I've done everything from concept art, modeling, texture, artist materials, rigging, UI, uh, cinematics, and just basically anything on the art side of stuff since the, the late 90s. Right. And you mentioned something there that I'd want to already highlight. You said rigging. You know, I was at the Carolina Games Summit. I think that was, I don't even remember already. It was like two months ago. And I talked to someone at Funcom who was a rigger. And I was like, what does that mean? And they, oh, this is the actual like skeleton of the things being animated. Right. That's yeah. its own job. It, it is, and, and um, I think they were they were probably downplaying what they do to some extent. It's not just the skeleton. Um, it is sometimes they don't even do the skeleton itself. Sometimes the modeler will say, "Hey, I've intended for the joints to be here, here, and here. I've put in the bones, but they're going to go in and set up what else those bones do um, as far as deforming the mesh. So you might raise the shoulder, and that's mm-hmm. got to then." through a series of percents and uh, and formulas, move the collarbone some percent of that up and raise on this rotation, you're going to be an elevation to that shoulder because you're pulling on the delts and that pulls this. And then uh, there might be a series of bones just floating around to pull pectoral muscles around. And that's a whole series of things that get baked into the, the animation on the export. But someone goes and sets that up. So me as an animator, when I pull this arm, uh, you have twist bones that move these muscles some percent of the wrist turn. And uh, yeah, that's a whole science in and of itself. And, and that's just one job work. like it's, you know, it's like, I remember talking to a recent guest who said that he was on a plane with someone at Rockstar and they were one of the horse artists that there were six horse artists, you know, six people go into making a horse for Red Dead Redemption too. Right. I, I wonder if people understand just how complex, you know, AAA gaming making them has become. I mean, it's not like one guy makes the character models for even just, it's like one person even just makes the character models for a type of animal. They might do one part of an animal. Yeah, it's not just that. It's just uh, you might work on one part of the animal that is interacting with a whole system of customization. So how do I make this work knowing that deeper in the game, we're going to have a series of helmets or augmentations or damage or it's got to react to let's say this character or animal gets wet how is this going to affect Mm. the way that you know everything is so interconnected now um not every game and not every character but if you're trying to convey something it might not be isolated the way it used to be it might be connected through i mean audio everything has to come together and, and work together and function and be tested 
and run through the ringer. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, some combination of hyper specialization and hyper communication. Mm-hmm. Well, and before we move forward, I guess you wanted to say this from the beginning. So, Keith, you you work at Ubisoft. You're willing to say you work at Ubisoft, but of course, you're not representing Ubisoft. Your yeah. opinions are your own as a games veteran, not right. as a representative of what Ubisoft thinks about everything. Yeah, I'm 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 not representing them in the least, and I appreciate them giving us the freedom to to talk to to great shows like you and um any any questions or opinions i i uh politely politely uh, uh sidestep is just respecting my team and and the efforts and knowing that things are constantly in motion and even if i was uh excited to say something planting that flag is is not necessarily the the, uh, the right answer tomorrow so it's mm-hmm. just not worth me even attempting sometimes right and so I guess now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, I mean, what got you into playing? I mean, I assume you started in this career because you liked video games. Like what got you into video games? What got you into this w- career? Well, I born in the 70s, kid of the 80s, and uh, I was there for basically four video games becoming a, a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I watched, I watched, uh, every little nook and cranny of the local pizza place get filled with stand-up arcade machines. And I loved playing, you know, the games everybody knows. And, you know, even the more obscure ones, I loved Moon Patrol and all those uh, slightly fringe of the the mainline early Atari stuff. And then uh, console-wise, you know, like everybody my age had a 2600. And then uh, probably the game that I put the most hours into was uh, Rust on, on the master system i fell in love with that thing and just played it It was probably the first game i played where mm-hmm. it wasn't um it wasn't a series of controls that you mastered to make what you want to happen on the screen it felt so intuitive it, it had a feel mm-hmm. um you didn't have to figure out that you hold that down after the jump to put the sword down it made sense that of course you would and it just felt fantastic it felt better than the arcade version so it's one of those uh early successes that I felt transcended its arcade uh, port, where it was ported from. When did it start to become professional? Did you program it all on your own? Like, where, how did you, where did you go to college, if you don't mind okay, saying? Sure, uh, yeah. Um, I, I didn't initially target game development as a career. It was always going to be art. Um, early, early, early on, thanks to John Carpenter and Rick Bottin mm-hmm. and all those guys, um, I, I want to do effects uh, on a practical level. And then uh, that combined with love of comic art. Um, and then I started uh, moving in that direction. And then uh, Jurassic Park came out and the whole digital realm opened up. Meanwhile, I'm still a huge gamer, but games are not being made by large studios with art departments specifically. It was uh, a lot more... Um, you needed to, to have a very strong code side and computer science side, especially mm-hmm. when we were talking talking about those old Atari standups. Uh, that, that's just a few folks, uh, mostly on the code side, and then there was no sitting there and, and with concept art and all that. But as I was moving through late high school and picking out an art school, um, it started becoming a, a real possibility that games were going to expand into similar to movies 
there's going to be an art department. There's going to be mm. a lot of thought and, and, um, and craft put into that side of it. And as I entered, I went to Savannah College Art and Design and I went in there and they, they're, they didn't have, uh, a, well, almost nobody did have a game development tract, but they did have professors that saw this coming and they got mm. the uh, PS1 net, I don't remember the net, uh, net your rose sets. It was a, um, a version of the PS1 that you could actually hook to a PC and code to it and mm. do all of that. And kind of as a, a pilot program for adding game development to that school, they were doing that stuff. I got to see some of that. And at the same time, I was seeing how movies were project-based. And you'd go in, do a project, move to the next project. And I liked the idea of being on a team that stays together, grows together, gets better, find our strengths and weaknesses. And uh, game development seemed to be more like that, where you could settle into a studio and a team and grow there. And I then pivoted one more time away from practical effects, comics, movie stuff into the game development stuff. So it's interesting. Was the reason you didn't directly, because clearly you were being, if we were to talk about medias that were inspiring you the most, obviously everyone's inspired by movies and TV and books, but it seemed like games were what inspired you the most. You didn't go directly towards gaming though. Is it because you just thought it was only programming? And because now it's funny to look back at, Gaming's huge. It's the biggest medium, you know, but it wasn't back then. Were you just kind of cautious if there'd be enough jobs? Uh, I didn't think it was, there was enough to chew on on the art side at the time. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, I clearly, um, you know, it, it was, it was getting there, the, the games, were getting, especially when the CD-ROM era was hitting and, and it was, it was getting there. I hadn't, I didn't, it didn't click yet that there was a place for me there. Um, and then I remember I was at SIGGRAPH, uh, 98, I think. And I started hearing the chatter. And all the way back then, we're going to be bigger than Hollywood. This is mm-hmm. going to be bigger than Hollywood. All the way back then, they started started feeling it, that it was about to take off. And that was kind of my my choice to pivot then. So I didn't like... I was seeing how uh, the movie and TV industry worked with the, the contract and, and project-based. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, look, there is a place for me here, and they're committed pushing the art of this and and doing narrative work and all this stuff like let's, yeah let's, i guess that's a good point too there was not that much narrative back then compared mm-hmm. to what you've seen now i right. mean and 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 i and right when i was starting all literally the first few months was when that first uh half-life uh beta not beta it was a beta or demo the half-life mm-hmm. demo hit and and of course now kids who didn't grow up and experience that seeing um skeletal deformation animations on that modified quake one engine was mind-blowing like we're gonna do this we can tell stories in this thing we can play back skeletal animation with with that was uh created in an ik system and exported and this is gonna work we're gonna be able to do amazing stuff here well it's funny you mentioned half-life now and you you mentioned halo before both of those are games that i think a lot of developers point to Half-Life for me, I I missed the first Half-Life when it first came out, and I kind of missed Half-Life 2 for a while, but as it turns out, like, my gaming, I say gaming, it was really terrible at the time, but laptop broke, and I had a netbook, and I was like, oh, it turns out, what's Half-Life 2's requirements? It's like single-core processor and a gigabyte of RAM, so I started playing Half-Life 2, and I was like, this is how old this game is? This is better than 
I, I can't imagine. I'm kind of envious of the people who bought Half-Life 2 at launch because it even I think I finally played it in like 2008 or 2009. And I was like, okay. this is mind-blowingly good for being this old of a game. I, I couldn't believe how good the acting, vo the voice acting was, the the story. I, I was like, that that really was a game. I think people, everyone should try to play that still holds up that really, it's still fun. It's still a fun game. It really is. Absolutely. And 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 again, like what I was saying, when they're saying we're going to be bigger than that is taking lessons mm -hmm. from a, a, a century of how to use a camera and applying <laughs> it where it matters the stuff they do. And, and, you know, the user of course has control of the camera, but if you're going to take the view screen of the big bad and you put it up, you're forcing the user to do yes. the cinema trick. Then there, there it is. It's framed. There's the cinema trick of, okay, I'm below him. I feel that, you know, and they know how to do that stuff and they knew how to do it back then. It was amazing. What was like the first big game you worked on? And then how did you get to work at Ubisoft? Like what, I mean, as quickly as we can go through it, I am kind of curious, you know, like I looked at the, you work at Red Storm, right? I looked right. at the history of games they've made and it's like, well, a lot of them, you know, right? <laughs> there's quite yeah. a list, you know, like, but what were the first games you worked on? And then the first big games you worked on at Ubisoft? Um, well, I started off at a, a little studio here in North Carolina called Random Games. And we did a PC only um, family and, and lightweight uh, card and board games. We did Scrabble. We did Upwards, uh, Hasbro Classic Card, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then from there, I left there in, gosh, 2000 to go to a place called IROC Interactive, which nothing is more late 90s, <laughs> early 2000s, uh, dot-com boom, than a game with, uh, sorry, a studio with I in the name, Yep. And the word interactive. So if you uh, think about everything it. Everything in the 90s had like interactive in the names in the early 2000s. Yeah, for but some it reason. also had the I. So it was interactive rock interactive. Like mm -hmm. we always internally oh, even yeah. thought that was hilarious. Um, but that was uh, based around the idea of getting uh, music licenses and incorporating that very tightly with the personalities into the game. And we worked on what was going to be an Ozzy Osbourne game. Uh, based on kind of sort of the lore of his 80s stuff. And it was one of the craziest, most wonderful experiences of my career because, well, it was the dot-com boom and, mm -hmm. and everything was possible at all. You know, whatever, whatever, yeah, we can make that work. And then also that was the PS2 drop. So mm -hmm. we pivoted from, this is a PC release to we're going to make this a PS2 exclusive um, and so we got to dig into that hardware and try to figure out how to make, you know, and, and you know, in retrospect, a, what was an open world, not open world, but large map flying game with huge sight distances and sky full of enemies was not the greatest choice for PS2. But, <laughs> but with the promises that we were hearing, it was the perfect choice. Of course, that was kind of an overpromised console on some levels. Right. I mean, and now you've got, you know, a famous rock star on the list, too, for like more buzzwordiness, right? <laughs> right. Uh, I, I mean, I could I literally could do a three hour show um, on on that experience itself, mainly because, uh, you know, now we're in the post Osborne's show era. <laughs> we are in the pre Osborne show era with kind of knowing that was coming, not being able to say anything about it. 
and trying to explain to potential publishers, you, you, we made a cool choice here with Ozzy. You're going to have to trust us. And it's like, no, who listens to Ozzy? No, who's heard of, heard of Ozzy in 20 Yeah, because he kind of went from kind of uh, forgotten has been to huge again overnight right. because of that and, show. And we had, uh, you know, one way or another, we kind of knew that that resurgence was coming. And, and you know, we made some very careful choices with that. But the timing worked out that when we eventually shipped the game because we couldn't get that that buy-in, he wasn't, Ozzy was stripped out of the game. I've, you know, for oh. all those, all your your audience that are avid uh, rarity collectors, I do have the Ozzy versions of that game, but, but where we have Ozzy models riding the dragons and it's it was pretty crazy. But um, yeah, that's not what shipped. What ended up shipping instead of Ozzy's Black Skies was a game called Savage Skies, which still I, I think is an underrated gem of that that era because flying crazy creatures that I personally got to concept, draw, model, texture, rig, animate. Only time in my career that, that because it was a pretty small studio working mm. on working on what was a next gen thing, um, we didn't have specialty teams. It was just get it done. And I got to tackle and it the game you know, was divided into factions based on different parts of his career. So I got to do the cool undead stuff and uh, just go nuts on the concepting of here's a giant flying eyeball with tattered bat wings and claws. And sure, go model that. Okay, approved. Go animate that. And that was a really unique experience that's never going to happen probably again for people who are launching on a, a mainstream console. I got the, the, um, the privilege of working on just a ton of Tom Clancy stuff who I, you know, loved as an author. And to those younger listeners, that was a real person who wrote real books that a lot of the games you think of, just a, a game that says Tom Clancy's on it are pulled from at mm -hmm. least long ago that have since morphed and changed and grown and expanded to include bigger audiences. But uh, the Ghost Recons, um, uh, Rainbow Sixes, the earlier Rainbow Sixes, um, all of those uh, early ones, I had some part in mostly uh, effects, lighting, cinematic stuff. So, for example, like, did you work on Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter 2? I think that was kind yeah. of like a launch-ish PS3 360 game. Yeah, and and uh, Gra 1 as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Island Thunder, Summit Strike, before that. So uh, I wonder if you remember, because I actually played Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter 2 quite a bit. Mm -hmm. what did you do for that game? I just want to pick out one example of something I've played just because I'm curious, okay. you know, what did you do for that one? If you remember. Um, right. In, in the, in the, in the arc of my career, that was right when I was starting to have touched enough things that I would, I would have a uh, main assignment. And I think main assignment, if I'm remembering that game, I'm, actually, I was going to say I did briefing cinematics, but that was, I think that ended on the summit strike one. So Gra 2, I was doing lighting and effects for multiplayer maps, I believe, if I remember right. And then I think I did some of the damage models for some stuff when you blow up like the Panhard tanks mm -hmm. and like the ADATs and stuff. We needed uh, damage versions of those models. I believe I was just grabbing some of that stuff off of, were we still using? I forget what we're using for source control, but I would just grab those and make damage versions and set those up as the damage versions for stuff like different parts of the hitbox and what weapon did what damage to that and where it like well, literally, crumbles literally the or 
literally the visual model. I've got the mm-hmm. visual model and, you know, uh, take it into 3 Studio Max and, uh, you know, damage it physically, uh, retexture it as a damaged version, assign some uh, particle effects for the, the sitting and smoldering, and then that would be the damaged version after you blew that up for a um, an objective for multiplayer yeah. stuff. And I remember that era right there was right when vehicles taking damage actually started to have, I mean, I'll be honest, any amount of like real continual effects. Like, as if I'm thinking before that, I'm thinking of like maybe the first Mercenaries game. You would shoot a tank with a rocket, there'd be an explosion, but then the tank would just maybe have a small smoke come out of it. And it looked the same no matter where you hit the tank. um, It's just takes three RPGs to kill the tank. It's weaknesses in the back, I guess. But really, it's just it goes from smoking to fire smoking to blowing up. There's no cracks in it or deformation. Look at modern Battlefield games. And it's like little tweaks to little bullet holes. And like this part of the track is now sagging a little because it got hit at this angle. It's it's so much more complex now. And there's there's full, I mean, not specific, any specific games, but just how stuff's done. Now, there's full physics uh, sim going on for entire suspension systems with you've got your trailing links and and the uh the camber links and all this stuff and things can be damaged and you'll see a, a front wheel flop over and then mm-hmm. the, the vehicle starts tracking left and all that stuff is is happening in real time now it's incredible which which i'm glad i actually picked that one game then in this time period because the next like main point of discussion i want to bring up then is you know you've been around for a while what do you remember regarding the effects of new consoles and like what you could do that was really new in a few generations? So like, for example, going from, you know, the PS2 era to the 360 PS3 era, when you got those dev kits, I'm curious, you know, and, and Advanced Warfighter 2 had been one of the first games made right. on the 360. What was the first thing that was noticed that was a big deal? Obviously, it's way, you know, what, processors 10 times stronger, graphics right. card 10 times stronger, you know, quadruple the RAM, or probably more than that back then. It's like 10, 20 times the RAM back then, I swear. Like, what was the biggest thing you guys noticed that allowed you to actually make a new type of game? Uh, there's, there was shifts. You know, every generation, there's a shift. That was the first time I remember, as an art team, us talking specifically about how we need to shift certain ways we think about building stuff. Cause that was, uh, despite it showing up on the original Xbox, it, it mm-hmm. just was, there was not enough of it. The, the shaders came to town, basically, uh, the pixel shaders, uh, changed the way we'd think about building things. We don't need to spend huge portions of polygon budgets represent really nice brick. Cause we can do that with, with normals, and materials in ways that was kind of sort of doable in the first Xbox, but prohibitively expensive. And before that wasn't possible at all. Mm-hmm. Like just, just a specular highlight was expensive before Xbox, the original Xbox. But now we have proper DirectX shaders with normals. And when we have uh, specular maps, and we have all this stuff and it changes the way you, you build things. You don't necessarily need to represent everything. In fact, you don't want to represent everything with geometry because like we were talking about the rigging, all that, it's all, it's all give and take, but mm-hmm. um, trying to rig certain things that would be easier to deal with with 
UV tugging and all kinds of stuff. It, it, it changed everything. Just the shader, GPU shader stuff coming online. Well, and I love asking these types of questions because if you were to ask Sony, they're like, the cell processor can do everything, you know? Right. And it's just like, but I like talking to actual people who build these games. Like, was it the processor? Was it the RAM or was it? It sounds like you're saying from Xbox to Xbox 360, and I assume that includes PS2 to PS3, it was the graphics power for you was the biggest deal on that one. Well, for, for me at that time, yeah. Um, and uh, to some extent, PS3, again, this is just from where I'm sitting, not an engineer. Yeah, I know. It, it felt like PS3 was a much more difficult beast early on in its life. It was, because it, it wasn't, you know, you, the Xbox was the first of the, it's an x86 in a box. You guys know how to use this. Go mm-hmm. use it. And then 360 was, it's that, but way better. Um, and meanwhile, Sony was still doing the, okay, here's PS1. PS2, radically different architecture. What'd they call that? Emotion engine? I believe they, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, radically different. Relearn everything, figure this guy out. And then they did that again on PS3. And you know, PS3 eventually sung like a violin eventually, but that was still in the Sony stuff is weird phase. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I, I just remember having, you know, Xbox and 360 dev kits on my desk because they were far more accessible for me to get on there and run my performance stuff on there and make sure all my stuff works. You know, what do you believe? I don't think I've ever asked this question exactly this way yet to a developer. A lot of developer, like you said, you were worried about, you know, this is just my perspective. Most, almost every developer I've spoken to has the same perspective you have, by the way, on the 360 versus the PS3. But it's interesting how they all say by the end of the generation, the PS3 wasn't actually hard to program for. And in fact, the PS3 was very powerful. What made it sing like a violin, like you said? Was it that you just figured out how to use its weird eccentricities? Or was it that the dev kits got better or like what specifically made it easier well since i didn't have to do any of that i'm going to be doing a lot of guessing on that but mm-hmm. we are we're an industry of people who who do talk and do share stuff and do want to help each other i'm sure a few a few game developers game developers conferences went by and talks were given and and uh people move around studio to studio and go no, no, that's not how you do that. I don't know if that's how, what changed. Something changed. Um, whether it was just time. It could have just been time. But I mm-hmm. know that uh, a lot of the, uh, can, can we get that to work? Like all that went away and it was fine. Yeah, because I guess what I'm kind of trying to get out with that question is the perception I get isn't just that developers eventually, and I put this in quotes, figured the PS3 out. It feels like eventually it was also easy at near the end. So you didn't just figure out all the tricks you had to do. Mm-hmm. Also, you figured out, oh, if we just do things exactly this way, it isn't hard. You know, that's what it seems like. Am I wrong? Is that the perception you got? Uh, that very well could be the simplest way to put it. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think, think there's some, we're all developing a PC. That's mm-hmm. just the, the fact of the matter. Like everybody's, no, nobody has uh, some strange uh, bioluminescent biocomputer they're building stuff on. It's we're making a PC, and those Microsoft consoles, the, the first and second generation Microsoft consoles, that's basically what we're working on here. Like 
that's pretty easy. Like mm-hmm. this, this goes right over there. It goes from here to there and it works. So really anything that wasn't x86 is going to be a little harder, right? Mm-hmm. It's, even if it's not hard, it's not sitting there with x86 It's not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and eventually Sony agreed with you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, like you said graphics, the upgrade in graphics was kind of the biggest deal um, going from PS2 to PS3 or really Xbox to 360. From 360 to Xbox One, PS4, was it, everyone says the, was it the RAM that was the biggest thing you noticed? It was RAM. And, I, and uh, if I remember right, I think the RAM even expanded on 360 not too far before launch, if I remember right. Um, they were going to go with a quarter gigabyte, and last minute they changed it to half a gigabyte because I believe Cliff Lazinski convinced them at the last minute that Gears of War would look like crap if they couldn't give him half a gig. That's what I remember. You, I'm glad you said the story that I wasn't going to say because I wasn't 100% sure if that's anathema or what really happened, but that mm-hmm. is, that's the reality in my head. And generally, if, unless I have hard facts, I don't like regurgitate stuff I've heard. But yeah, that's that's the story I heard too. Mm-hmm. And so that was the big, so the biggest deal then though, half a gig still wasn't a lot going to PS4, getting to eight gigabytes and I'm, or was it, okay, let me ask you this. What was the most important thing? The fact that every Xbox one and PS4 had a big hard drive or the fact that they had eight gigabytes of Ram. As someone who at the beginning of, I mean, this is my whole career. That's not a Mm. a current thing. Uh, you start off with a budget, you get, uh, you get your, your footprint. Like, this is how much your art can sit on, whether whatever the media is, right? You get mm-hmm. a footprint, you get memory use, and you get milliseconds spent rendering. Um, that RAM helps. That that blo- opens my budget up a ton. So that, that, that fee is, is massive. The hard drive is not as big a deal for me mm-hmm. as the artist uh, because real-time stuff, the, the, source, the source art is not usually that huge. Um, it's, it's, uh, your storage is always going to be bigger than your hot Ram at the time. So that was usually the bigger bottleneck. So moving then to the PS5 and Xbox series X, Mm -hmm. what, what's the biggest thing you notice moving to this generation? I, I am really curious for each of these console generations. Like what was the thing where it's like, Oh, finally we get to do this. You know, what was the big thing? Here, here's where I'm going to uh, put on, like, I'll leave my developer head on. I'm going to put the user head on, too. Um, I wasn't crying out for more graphics horsepower so much as a either developer or user, but the experience that the SSDs bring, the instant mm-hmm. on, the instant loading, uh, that brought back some of what we, I think I feel, again, as a user, we have sl- very slowly lost as console kits because... You know, it started as you slap a cartridge in, hit yeah. on, you're going. That's it. And we've lost that slowly more and more and more, starting with, okay, we're loading, loading off CD-ROMs. That's going to take a little more time. And then uh, we're going to get our patches. We're going There's a million reasons, but that experience has been eroded. And I feel like it's back with my Series X. I mm-hmm. turn, turn that on, and I pick the game. I hit quick resume, comes right off the SSD, and I'm not just loaded the game. I'm back at the moment. I stopped last week. Mm-hmm. That for me is bigger than any major graphics advantage or any other stuff that's going on in there. Now, I, I know your audience is screaming and boiling that, you know, they're the, uh, 
uh, all the the resolution and, and frame rate <laughs> and all this. But uh, I think I think they've begun to focus more back onto the user experience, and I I love that about it. Well, you know. You say the user experience. I mean, frame rate is the user experience. You know, when people ask me what's the biggest thing that feels next gen on these consoles compared to the previous gen, I'm like, well, it's that they all games run at 60 frames now. And right. and I and I remember before this gen started, Ubisoft specifically, there were games like Assassin's Creed Valhalla and others that were like, oh, we're targeting 4K 30. And I was like, no. Don't target 30. And right before launch, it seems like Ubisoft and a lot of other developers made the decision, hey, we're we're passionate for 60 frames, because 1800p at 60 is way better than 4K at 30. I mean, what are we well, talking about? What, what's funny is, is as much as I will like remove myself from the bleeding edge uh, lust in this discussion, my, my favorite game, Rastan, ran at 62 back in 1986. So mm-hmm. yeah, 60 is a, a nice number to, to, to sit at. And even some games now have 120 hertz modes on console. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all of it, right? It's the quick loading all the features, the snappiness, and the fact that nothing feels jittery now. It's just so smooth, the new generation. Right. And, and the, the like, I still have my old um, Xbox, uh, gosh, what did they even call it before the, the series started? Xbox, Xbox One. One. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think my brain wanted to call it the X-Bone, and I, my, <laughs> part of my brain said, no, you're being recorded, don't call it that. But yeah, Microsoft got, got very mad when people called it that around yeah. launch for some reason. Yes. Yeah, it's been been drilled into me not to say that. Um, but yeah, the 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 thing that was aging there was the snappiness of the UI. Once you're in game, it was still okay, but it was just a terrible experience to get the game from. And I'm I like physical copies of things from the disc to the screen was just a slog. Hmm. Well. All right, so we've kind of covered some of the more general aspects of transitioning to the newer consoles. Um, and and I think you've said what we would expect. I wasn't actually quite sure for like the 360, if you're going to say the amount of RAM or the horsepower, but it seems like the, the order it goes is horsepower, and then for right. PS4, it was the RAM, and for PS5, Xbox Series, it was the SSD, which is yeah. what most people say. Um, but we have a reader mail question here from a supporter on Patreon, and Trey Drolet writes in. He says, how much more time-consuming is it to make high-quality assets of any kind versus PS2 or PS3 era? If not harder, how much more time? So I guess let's just stop at like PS3 era. So from, I guess, which is already two gens ago, if you can believe it. So from the PS3 era to PS5, how much more time goes into making a character model versus right. then? This is one of the, the questions I was worried about picking the bones off of earlier, but um, yeah, it, a, a lot of our tools are better now. Uh, so, certain things we can get through faster. Uh, certain the departments are specialized. We have a rigor to do something. So getting an asset from concept through model to where I can animate it, a lot of that actually is our, our personal workloads look about the same, but we're doing smaller, more specialized chunks of things. But that asset that would have represented just my work before, if you zoom out and look at the, the human hours dumped into it, it is far more time consuming, but it's only because there's so much more going on there. So, you know, it's funny, every generation, it seems like games take longer to make. Like I remember during like the PS2, Xbox era, I mean, I think Halo 1 was basically made in a year, you know, <laughs> like the games took about a year to make back then, maybe a year and a half, depending on what's required. And then in the PS3, 360 era, I mean, I remember when, like, what, just, like, 
comes off the top of my head, like what Gears of War one, two, three, Resistance one, two, three. It seems like games back then took two years by the end of the gen, three years. And now it's like, <laughs> I mean, heck, where's the last of us factions that can't even get the multiplayer right. done? It seems right. like games take like four to five years now. And specifically, I butted into this. I feel like people are expecting games to take six years now because I remember when I leaked that God of War's sequel is going to be revealed. When did I leak that? I, I got I think that was before the PS5 came out. And everyone said, there's no way they'll confirm that comes out. That'll be three and a half years after the previous game. And I'm like, shouldn't we be expecting games to be done in three and a half years? Do you think things games are going to keep taking longer to make necessarily? Or do you think we've probably hit about where we're going to be at about four years for a cycle? I mean, your your show is kind of named after the, uh, the inability for trends to continue forever. Uh, there's yeah, <laughs> probably, there's probably got to be a, a limit, right? Um, but expectations drive the growth of what you got to put in. And I, I think we're we're probably still in the midst of they expect X plus one. So we're going to go X plus 1.5 and we're going to put that in there. You know, everything but the kitchen sink and the kitchen sink. Um, and that's, you know, speaking industry wide, not anything I'm personally involved in, but that is going to keep going till it can't, I'm sure, because it's got to be cooler, bigger, and more engaging. It's got to give you what you felt last time plus. Well, in your opinion, though, at what point does a studio have to make that decision deliberately themselves, right? Because if you look at, you know, this absurd term, I think that was brought up by some Microsoft studio called Quadruple A. It was like brought up in some jobs listing and people keep saying it now. The only game I really think of that's Quadruple A is like, I don't know, Red Dead Redemption 2 and, got you know, GTA 5. I mean, those were games right. that took half a billion dollars before that was the standard and were like, I mean, they're, they're huge. They're like, they take like six, seven years to make. That's big. At what point, though, do you think other studios need to just go, maybe the game doesn't need to be this big. Maybe we're done. Ship it. You know, maybe don't add all this content. I think we've quietly, quietly seen that because it wasn't that long ago that having a multiplayer, okay, to me, that long ago, we're actually probably talking 15-something years, <laughs> but having a multiplayer mode at all was an oddity or a specific bullet point feature. Like, hey, this is this, this has multiplayer. Holy moly, this is cool. Um, then that became expected, even for games that really mm -hmm. shouldn't have it. Really should not have it. Right. So that got huge. And then at some point, and I'm not going to name names, I don't even know what the status of some of the stuff is um, out there right now, but a lot of those games that are famous for their multiplayer started quietly shrinking then dropping the single player. So I think we've seen what you're talking about already happening. We're saying we're we're just going to focus on the part you like if you don't mind. Is that okay? Yeah. I mean, and I guess what I'm kind of saying though is so it sounds like you think that kind of I mean, not to put like a firm number, I'm not literally saying half the studios, but a lot of studios are going to keep experimenting with bigger you know, and then a lot of them have probably said, you know, we know what needs to go into a game. We're sticking to four-year cycles and just cutting content we don't really need. And, and I think there's going to be some of that. I think probably there's there's a lot of uh, watching the shows like this and the fandom and stuff and seeing what are they actually enjoying? Because we'll, we'll improve the stuff you're enjoying if we can figure out what you're really loving here. But mm -hmm. if, if, why would we spend a... a and by we, I shouldn't even say we, why would they spend a ton of time polishing the stuff that nobody's looking at? So 
I want to move into the idea of console optimization because I think we've kind of been dancing around what goes into that. So Falto writes in and he asks, hello, my question is regarding console optimization. And he puts it in quotes. How exactly are you guys able to make a game run better on a console with similar hardware to a PC? For example, if I built a PC with the same specs as a PS4, would I actually get weaker performance overall? Or in other words, what's the console secret sauce? And I kind of want to jump into this too, because before, you know, I take your answer, I, I've always had a problem with the term secret sauce, you know, as someone who analyzes hardware kind of for a living now, I've always like when I really drilled in gone, I don't think there's secret sauce. I think this is why it's running better. I think I can explain it. It's not a secret, you know? And, and in fact, I even looked for a recent release to find an example. I was like, how is far? I like literally just randomly I picked, how is far cry six performing? I looked it up. Okay, PS5 seems to have better geometry and reflections than the Xbox Series X, although it's very slight. And the Xbox Series X runs at a slightly higher resolution. Sometimes it's a dynamic resolution. And then the PS5 loads half a second faster. I can explain all of this. We've already seen the geometry engine in the PS5. We know the Xbox Series X has more bandwidths, which would help with a higher resolution. We know the PS5 is a faster SSD. I don't see any of this as being secret here. Like, like literally, do you, is there like a twenty to forty percent boost that consoles get over the equivalent PC hardware, or do you think it just has to do with how much optimization is done for all the different hardware on PC? I, I think um, to some extent it's a super simple answer, and you kind of nailed it there. To some extent, it's known quantities. Like mm-hmm. you're 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 putting out a release for a known piece of hardware, and of course, I could before before last. Uh, half generation when we started doing that, um, I could have said you have one target hardware spec. Of course, then you know PS4 Pro and Xbox One X. You get that half gen, so you might have to hit a few things. But before that, console is the console, and you could sit engineer team of engineers down, and they could bring things right to the limit of uh, the memory cap right to the limit of the, you know, the, the millisecond budget of this and this and this feature. And they could tell uh, an artist, hey, literally, if we take the particle count down by four in this scene of your big smoke clouds, we don't have a single frame rate dip this whole time. They could tell mm-hmm. you stuff that granularly because it's a known quantity instead of in the PC you know, realm, even if you're shooting for that exact spec, I, it, there, there's so much flux between even brands when there shouldn't be, or or just the way you set up your PC in the in the BIOS setting, the speed of your RAM to get a little more stability. There's just so much going on. Not to mention that the your software is running on a stack of subsystems of the OS and whatever launcher you're using, and all. There's so much stuff going on. Plus, you could have Spotify going, and it's, mm-hmm. it's just a different world in there. Um, I don't know if it's certainly not a failing of the PC hardware itself. It's a, it's a different environment. You would say there is an advantage, but maybe if I'm hearing you right, it's not like a, an exact percent boost in performance so much as it's like we were able to fit more and less RAM half the time is what it usually is, right? Or am I if wrong? I, if I, okay, if I'm, I'm going to step outside of everything and, and, and stand over in the corner as my own studio somehow, and I'm, I'm, my goal is to make something with a performance uh, 
uh, bullet point in the box that it's going to run. I guarantee it's going to do this at this frame rate. And I want to do that on a console. I just want to do it on a console because I know that I'm sitting there. And if I get that experience out of my dev kit, my consumer's getting it mm-hmm. for sure. Um, what, whether I spend forever optimizing it or not, I know that it's, it's for all intents and purposes, a one-to-one from my desk to the living room of everybody on the planet. Um, and I, I can see how that would be, I don't know, frustrating or, or not fun to hear for, for PC fans. Um, but the reality is the, I can't count the variables when you're dealing mm-hmm. with PC hardware. It's just not possible. There's stuff that, like, I don't know how you'd even track it down sometimes. I, I see forum posts and things like, I have X, Y, Z, and I have this problem. And I'm like, I feel bad for whoever's reading that that support ticket because I don't even know where you'd start because mm-hmm. those specs seem fine to me. Well, let me transition then into this question. So Laws writes in and he says, Hi, Tom and Keith. Are the games currently in development made purely for the new consoles or is cross-compatibility with the older gen here to stay for a while? This is interesting. Um, uh, in relation to you know, when we met, the stuff we were talking about, this was... This was, you know, not that long ago, but it was long enough ago that we pre- not predicted, but we saw some of the stuff that's happening right now coming with the the supply chain problems. Uh, we saw uh, mm. at the time we already had, uh, you know, chip shortage that that hadn't been going on a while. But I think we both said something to the effect of that's the beginning of what's going to be a, a series of, if not dominoes, uh, a series of isolated events of of supply chain stuff. And I'm not gonna. I'm not going to pretend to know what's being talked about in, in marketing offices across the industry or everything, but I do know that if we aren't sure as, as, uh, as a entire uh, pastime and hobby, if the demand for the next gen is being filled, I don't know why we would then exclusively target a, an unfilled series of, uh, slots under tvs across the across the planet right mm-hmm. like, you're not going to put out exclusives i wouldn't put out exclusives if people are there go that's great i don't have that i have here's money no console um and, and, and until you can go to the average store and there's always the, the next gen available to buy i i would imagine this is just me imagining you're taking sales away from the experience that you're trying to provide but your software, if they can't run it. Well, so I, I've heard this point brought up before by other people. And for example, the Xbox Series X is selling fantastic. And mm-hmm. the PS5 is literally outselling what the PS4 was in aligned mm-hmm. sales. And yet you saw after about a year, everyone drop support for PS3. Now, so if you make the argument, yeah, but there's people who want a PS5 or a series console that can't get one. We're actually ahead of the game compared to the previous gen. Now, is the reason that you'd want to support them because, you know, there's just so much also more demand for the new consoles than there were back then and you don't want to leave them out? Or is it that you were just, uh, to put it one way, from what I've heard, so tired of developing for those half gigabyte of RAM 360s and PS3s? You know, like, is that a reason the support was dropped for the last gen so quickly back then? Or is, or is you know, because it, if you strictly make the argument, oh, but so many people don't have a PS5 yet. It's like, well, more have PS5s than have PS4s. So what happened back then? 
Right. Well, I mean, I guess I'm going to reply with another question. Do those numbers mean anything now? Because in that time, we're talking, we're, we're looking at across three generations now. Mm-hmm. Gaming has changed as far as what has happened and what has been the result of, of a very positive thing of reaching out and trying to super expand who we consider part of our gaming culture. So <clears throat> when you're going from PS3 to PS4, you may talking about a, a pool of PlayStation enjoyers that's one size. And in the meantime, we've, you know, whether it be just from the genres or being welcoming to, to more groups, yeah, you may have hit those numbers. You may have surpassed those numbers, but the percent of people who are ready to move on is actually much smaller than you were able to serve. Mm-hmm. The, I don't know if the, those numbers alone, without seeing the percent of people who really are sitting there waiting to buy it, I, I don't know if those are directly relatable on a pure mm-hmm. number of consoles moved into the living rooms level. Well, I guess now that I think about it, to counter, to, to answer my own question, I guess an argument you could make would just be, you know, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, we know that there's 10 million people who want to play this Far Cry and half of them are on PS4, (laughs) you know? So at the end of the day, why would we not try to make that money? And also at the end of the day, hey, look, Far Cry 3, you know, I guess Far Cry 3 actually was on the PS3 and PS4, and it ran very badly (laughs) comparatively on the PS3. And you could say that's true now comparatively, but I I don't know. I think think there's just a lot more of back then. It's like, hey, look, like we can't even make these games on the last-gen consoles, so that's why we're ignoring them. But Or maybe you disagree, though. Maybe you thought maybe they could have. Because, I mean, again, Far Cry 3 was on both. It was cross-gen, just like Far Cry 6 is. I... We talked at the uh, the Carolina Game Show about my my love for the uh, the ability to do more with less and all that kind of stuff. When you're talking about cross gen, that is where the the exception lies. You don't want to give uh, a different experience with the same title, right? You don't want to call two things uh, game uh, game iteration nine when they're clearly not the same experience. I can see the the disparity when we went from uh, PS3 to PS4. I'm not, I haven't played um, a game cross-gen. I take that back. I looked at, uh, at Resident Evil Village. I found it pretty playable on both, but I certainly enjoyed it more on Series X. Um, I, as far as if we're going to continue supporting it, I, I really do think um, the, the, the numbers we moved before don't necessarily relate to how big the potential audience is now because it's just so mainstream now. There's, it's hard to find people who don't play games than it is to, to gather a group of gamers now. Is there any concern, though, that like making these games for the previous gen is going to hold back the next gen at mm-hmm. all in like, the performance or even what's going on in the game? You know, I, I talked to someone at Sony Santa Monica on the show working on the new God of War, his answer basically was, well, it's not a new IP. Frankly, we've designed the God of War before the PS5 came out, so it's really not going to change the overall design of the game. But I think that excuse only works maybe two years into development. I mean, how long until it really does make a a huge difference? Or how long until the previous gen just runs horribly? I've heard that Battlefield 2042 ran fine on the next-gen consoles, 
But on the PS4, it, it barely even can run at a reasonable frame rate, like above 20 frames. I mean, we, I, I've, we've heard this um, generations past. We heard this uh, before. I, I'm sure there, there, there's certainly a grain of truth to if you're, you're supporting a platform past the time when people want that experience, it, and you, but you, you're insisting on doing it, uh, and you want the same experience across both, both the new and the old. There's going to be cuts there. Um, I don't, I don't think it's going to be a problem for long. And I, I've I've looked at some of the other questions that are coming, and people are like, or and then the way with the one that went by, just went by about how, uh, you know, if I build a PC the same spec, it's it's not quite the same experience. This happens every time we get a new generation. These generations are around whether it's you know. Sometimes it's it's four years, sometimes it's fourteen years, depending on what really you know what you count as a generation. But you know these things age pretty quickly, and the, the PC fandom pushes their hardware up, and it it, it crosses like a, a synoidal wave across each other. Like this is an argument we're not going to be having in a year and a half, mm. two years, right? The, the the PC spec will fly on the trajectory roughly where it's going, and we'll have this console generation go from the cheapest way to get the best bang for the buck to behind the curve a little bit, and then mm-hmm. it'll shoot back up. So this, I think these are, these are questions that only come out at this point. And this, this is something, you know, these questions could only really be a super concern for, I don't know, six months or so at a time, every five or so years going back four or so generations. I don't think yeah. it's going to... Well, so can, well, yeah, I mean, I I guess, well, you know, we're a year into the console gen at this point. Um, Would you argue, so you're saying Far Cry 7 won't be on PS4 though, because that's (laughs) when the conversation's gone on for longer than usual, right? I I think, okay, I'll just say, I I don't know. I did not work on six, certainly not on seven. And I think somebody who just is a fan of watching this stuff go, had nothing to do with it, would say it'd be pretty unlikely if we're, you know, we're still doing that, but we're in a really unlikely time as far as supply chains and and uptake of hardware. So, in normal times, I would think we're probably on the path of moving moving along. But I honestly couldn't predict it for multiple reasons. Just that these are just unprecedented times. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you do believe that the unprecedentedness of how much people are gaming now and want the new stuff but can't is maybe accentuating or extending it a little bit. Absolutely. I think I think everybody is underestimating how large the gaming fan base is now. It's mm-hmm. it's it's shocking. We were just talking about, you know, uh, not that long into this conversation how uh it is bigger than the other entertainment medias. It is ubiquitous. And whether it's just Candy Crush on your phone, it's still touching you. Like it is commonplace to be a fan of gaming on some level. Let me pivot this type of question to like a different facet of like, you know, what platforms here. Like Illyrium writes and he says, Hey, Tom and Keith, thank you for doing this interview. It's much appreciated. Do you happen to have any insight on the impact of AMD's sponsorship of an Assassin's Creed game, for example? The first game they sponsored, they lost badly in benchmarks, but then came out on top in the following two games, indicating that developers were now putting an effort to reward AMD's hardware, maybe more so than NVIDIA. A follow-up question would be, does AMD really need to actively sponsor titles for its customers to benefit 
choosing AMD on Newegg or something for their gaming PC. Like, and I really don't like how much does AMD, like I've talked about NVIDIA sponsoring with plenty of people. How much does AMD sponsoring, you know, a new game coming out affect its performance or, you know, like what does that even mean that they sponsored it? Like, how does that affect your job? Wow. Like that, that's one of those questions that there could be a direct, perfect answer to that. And that answer could exist. And I could be specifically cued that, yeah, go ahead and answer that question and not have a clue how that affects anything because it doesn't touch my desk at all. I have mm-hmm. no idea how that works, why, who it's touched, who's responsible for what, or how much is there to the idea that any kind of preference or, or desire to cause, I don't know any of that. I know that my art is benchmarked on the dev kit And Mm -hmm. that's what I run with. You know, because I've asked multiple developers this on the show before, you know, from graphics, graphical artists to people who do the visual effects to you who does both, (laughs) you know, and it seems like most people say things like, oh, I don't know. Like, it seems like most people at these studios don't have their workflow changed at all when NVIDIA or AMD or Intel sponsors something. I don't know. I, I know people uh, actually, but my other passion being making movie accurate horror props, uh, just just semi aside that is related and just happened to bump in in that whole fandom into an artist uh, working on God of War stuff who's in the same fandom who makes cool stuff too. Um, but yeah, I'll say for everybody I bump into, nobody has a... Uh, IT team walking around swapping out the hardware in their desktop box based on <laughs> who's sponsoring what at any given time. And that's really where the only place I would notice anything is when the machine, my workstation uh, mm-hmm. is affected. And my workstation is not affected by that. And I'm not really aware of anything above that level. Right. And I know, so I know you can't directly answer, but that even that in and of itself is kind of a useful answer, I think, to the audience. Like, to your knowledge, nothing changes. And can I add on to this? I'm guessing with Xbox and like, because sometimes a Far Cry will be in Sony PlayStation ads. And all of a sudden the sequel, for some reason, it says on Xbox when they do the trailer for some reason. I don't think there's anyone either like walking around from Microsoft like now you're developing it on Xbox, not PlayStation first. It doesn't really affect anything, I'm guessing, in terms of hardware. The, the, all of that stuff is on a... a conversational and decision level that has absolutely nothing to do with my desk in any way. I, it doesn't change the, the list of animations I have to do and the effects and getting to run right and look gorgeous. Yeah. I've got, I got nothing really for you on that other than, yeah, there's no, uh, you know, enforcer walking by making that announcement. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I think then my answer to people listening is likely that if you look at Microsoft sponsor Far Cry 6, which I think they did if I saw an ad correctly online, uh, what that means is they're going to pay for the marketing. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you have to optimize for Xbox better, nor so with NVIDIA and AMD. Now, the exception I will give is I know that like AA studios and smaller, like 4A Games who makes Metro Exodus, I think mm-hmm. NVIDIA helps them a lot more than usual because they require the help programming the game. That's a different circumstance. But I think when it comes to like 
mega studios. I don't think much changes except for they get to put AMD on the box for every game sold, and that's an AMD marketing chance. I honestly think that's what it is. But mainly what this whole chunk is just continue to make me happy that I'm not in marketing and not knowing any of this is bliss. I am like the better part of this stuff I'm learning today that, that people are aware of concerned and, and, and trying to connect dots on all this stuff where I'm like, I made some pretty stuff and it runs good. That's really where, where my engagement is, is wanting to make, the coolest looking stuff, run the best, and really represent what the uh, theme and tone of that moment in the game is. And all this stuff is not only just out of my control, but blissfully out of my knowledge. Again, though, it is just funny to think about because I think sometimes there is this perception that, oh, you used an NVIDIA-sponsored game for your benchmark list for this graphics card review. And I'm like, yeah, but it ran better on AMD hardware. I don't think they're just walking around swapping out stuff every other year, guys. Right. Um, Deepest Learners writes him, and he says, with the new generation of consoles out, a kind of standard compute architecture for gaming has emerged. You have a CPU with main memory keeping track of what is going on in the game, the GPU either on socket or in an APU if it's, uh, or on the PCI bus if it's discrete that draws the scenes, and the storage is a flash SSD over PCIe. We can see, we can all see the iterative improvements that will be made to this architecture. Faster CPUs, faster GPUs, more memory, higher bandwidth interconnects for lower latencies, thermal performance between the parts. My question, though, is what do you think will be the next big shift in architecture? Most recently, we moved from hard drives over to SATA SSDs, over to PCIe SSDs. What's next? What is the weakest link here, in your opinion? I think the weakest link's not in that list. I think mm-hmm. the, the general living room where these, this generation of consoles sitting, the weak link's the display. I think uh, most of us, including myself, who my TV is chosen because of my love of film, has a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, color range, but doesn't mm-hmm. have, do, doesn't have um, the, uh, the expanded color range. It just looks great with my Blu-rays. Runs great with my 24 frames per second uh, playback of Blu-rays. Fantastic. And I haven't upgraded that TV for this gen. So uh, it's not taking advantage of a lot of the features of that Series X sitting under there. And because this you know, paragraph literally says generation of consoles, I think the majority of users, certainly not your, your listeners who are keyed in to how to get, the, get everything out of that, uh, mm-hmm. I think displays. Like people don't realize that they are past their display with their console. I I just couldn't agree more with that statement. I'm not sure what the next gen will be, whether it will be VR, because I think VR is just a different experience. I I think there's always going to be display gaming and VR gaming as two Mm -hmm. separate things, kind of. But I think people really are underestimating, once you check all the boxes, how big of a difference it makes, you know, OLED, perfect black levels, low response times, 120 hertz, 4K capabilities, which is becoming standard. You know, I don't have an OLED monitor because they're like $30,000 for some reason, but which I think is absurd, by the way. Uh, But at the end of the day, I do have a 4K 120 hertz variable refresh rate monitor. It's IPS. It looks fantastic. I have an OLED TV that can do 4K 120. I feel like 
low response time 4K 120 is going to become somewhat of a standard. Right. That's not to say all games need to run native 4K, but you know, with dynamic resolution, it can right. look better. Um, but I think if you're still gaming like 1080p 60 with an old TN panel, it's the difference is with HDR. Real HDR is so big. <laughs> right. And I, I and I I'm aware of it. I don't have it yet. Just haven't done it. Like the, the the screen I have in the in in the the main room there for for enjoying entertainment screen fits perfectly. It's, yeah, it's one of those homeowner things. Like I like that thing. It's there. It's not broken. But when I replace it, I know the difference it's going to make. Because I've seen some people make this argument. Would you say the Series X, the PS5, this level of performance has enough to pretty much make any game you'll want to make for the next while? Not just compared to normal. But like that this, it might be hard to push people to the next level of graphics because it's just, hey, look, they're doing it. It's above 1440p most of the time. It's at 60 frames and it loads instantly. Do you think this is a level where anything past this is going to require just radically more powerful hardware for photorealism? Or like, where do you think we're sitting? Like, doesn't it feel like we, we say that every generation? Does it feel like, yeah, gosh, I don't. I'll admit it does, you know. Yeah. If but I was like playing it, Death Stranding Director's Cut, and I was like, no, this really does kind of look photorealistic, though, in sure. some scenes. Sure, and, you know, and a lot of that is the, the strides that are made with uh, uh, scanning of materials. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, photogrammetry. Yeah, mega scanning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, a friend of mine, actually, that's his, his whole um, current career. He started, I'm not going to drop names or anything, but that's his thing. Like, his, his little company logo pops up on Tons of games because he makes the material sets for all that stuff, and yeah, that that's fantastic. Um, where whether to, to say nope, this is all we're going to need for a long time is like saying that nobody's going to have an idea that's going to strain this thing. I, I think we're definitely going to find some way to 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 make it make it make it uh, sweat. We'll find something whether it's it's a new mm. genre whether it's my dream of of having your your uh, I'd love to always love space stuff of having your on the ground. It, well, I mean, I guess you're trying that with Star Citizen, which I haven't tried mm-hmm. yet. But that kind of idea taken to another. There's ways we'll we'll push it. Um, as far as what the average console user is used to, I, I I think it's more than covering that right now. You know what what's what's expected, but like we said. You know, 30 minutes ago, uh, what's expected creeps along. And if, if a hardware spec is staying static and the expectations are creeping along, you'll you'll catch it. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess let me throw this question in then. Falto asks, how much better are graphics going to get? This might be a stupid question, but is it possible for a game's graphics to be better than real life? I think all art is better than real life. Like, that's not a stupid question at all to ask someone who, you know, is is... Uh, art serious um but as far as if if you mean by better you mean more photoreal than like hyper real um Mm. that talking about about as subjective a question as possible but in no way stupid like what if we're capable of photorealism but then there's the instagram effect of everything is the perfect version of what it would look like in real life like can we get better than photorealistic graphics and like oh you know it'd be cooler if these colors look this way I mean, the, the amount of, and again, this this is in no way based on anything I, I actually have seen in progress, but this is me just spitballing mm-hmm. uh, how how we would go. Um, the amount of, of 
data collection we willingly let accumulate, I could see over time, and this is, you know, generations down the line or whatever, uh, all your options choices in games over time accumulating in a, a uh, database in your, in your save file, in your profile, where uh, the art is being, uh, there's, there's variable, variables there that are on the fly making choices, and the game is very specific to you in a way that is based on your previous choices. Um, that kind of hyper-realism where it feels like serendipity that, oh, the protagonist is driving my favorite car, or it's the, it's the <laughs> right color, or oh, I, I really like uh, this band, and he's wearing that T-shirt, or you know, wh whatever it is. To make you like a character more, or a character they don't want you to like, they're like, you know, this guy hates Nissans for some reason, we're going to make him drive a Nissan. <laughs> right, those kind of, kind of things that, that know how to pull on your sympathetic threads or push against them on purpose, um, I could see, because we were talking about the customization and any amount of work goes into putting all that, but having all that be more mm. transparently uh, tailored to you in, in a way that's specific to you to give you in a unique experience, that is something that I, I could see being a path we go down. Um, I don't, haven't seen any movement on that. Uh, this is really kind of on the cuff stuff, just trying to imagine where we would go with more horsepower and having, because every time you add customization mm -hmm. in any game, you're dedicating an amount of work that any one player is never going to see, right? If they mm -hmm. don't choose, uh, you know, give them, give them two characters to choose from to start the game, the entire characters, there's a chance they're only ever going to see one storyline. Um, yep. If you give them a hundred, there's, you know, 99, 99 of the, uh, percent of your work is not going to get seen. So we start talking about the stuff I was just describing. You're, you're committing to a lot of content that most players aren't going to see. But um, that, that is one way to go. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it, of like how the game tailors itself to make your experience what you would call the best thing for you. That takes so much obvious work and play testing to make the right. algorithm not just ruin the game over time. Right. Right. But that is something to strive for. I mean, so perfect. My next question then, what hardware is required to make a game that can do that? What would you put in the hypothetical PS6 compared to now? Like, what performance do you think we're going to see out of a console that launches, let's say, in 2026? Wow. Gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great windows and gaming keys you need at cdkeyoffice.com. That includes Steam, Origin, Uplay, PlayStation, PC, and many other keys, including Windows, Microsoft Word, and Professional. Use the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all of these fancy windows keys and dashing for 3% off everything on the website. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They're a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. That's a, it's a fantastic question. I do, like you said before, you think there's always going to be uh, viewing games and VR games. Well, and I don't think that affects the performance too much either. It's like, okay, so now you're doing 
8K60 in 2026 instead of 4K times per eye times 240 or, you know, whatever the equivalent is for VR. It's all horsepower, you know, in that right. regard. But how does that work? I guess the question there is if if you if you dedicate, and again, this is, I know no specs about any company mm-hmm. stuff. This is me from someone who's just been around watching stuff go along. What does that do from a uh, input design standpoint, right? Because mm-hmm. nobody wants to put on the VR interface, we're not going to call it a helmet or glass because who knows what it'll be, uh, inter- VR interface and hold the controller. And then there seems Although to be... I think that's probably the best way to play still because it's just, if it's a shooter, because you're just more accurate if you're used to using a controller. So it depends on the game though. If you're not, yeah. if it's a static game, then it's good to use the like motion controls in your hand. I really, I really liked, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna get the name wrong, aren't I? What, what was the, the Epic One Robo, ro- not Robo Rally. Anyway, I, I've played I've played more than a few games that are pretty close to traditional genre games that use the motion controls in a way that really justifies them. Uh, well, and I would say Super Hot is one of those games. Okay, that for yeah. sure does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that would be that would be something that I would like to to, to see a, a dedication to VR uh, mm-hmm. without without forsaking the, the the screen and then find a way to to um to bring the the control the control schemes together in a, in a in a pleasing way that doesn't feel like you're sacrificing one for the other that doesn't feel like you have to compromise to make it work on both or one or the other but as far as hardware we yeah. we, we are so i don't want to say we're far out over our skis cuz we know what we have we know how to use it but you almost need the idea to justify the desire, right? I need to have hmm. that idea of, man, it'd be cool if we could do this thing, but we can't. What we need is X or Y. And but that's not happening that much anymore, is it, on these consoles? As someone who who would love a new genre, that would love that feeling of putting Tony Hawk in for the first time and going, I didn't know I could feel this, mm-hmm. right? Like, that was... Uh, a mind blowing thing. That was something as a as a as a kid. I was the kid you you took your skateboard to to get airbrushed, but I couldn't ride it. Um, to feel that and feel like I was having that experience, yeah, I'm ready for another one of those. I'm ready for something I was not expecting to feel. And VR has been the closest I've gotten to that. I see. In a long time, that's why I'm uh, a big proponent of it. And I've had the the privilege of working on quite a few uh, VR titles, and. And have you know fulfill a childhood dream of working on uh, Star Trek Bridge Crew, and getting to uh, be asked to and expected to dive in on a super nerd level to what you know every button and switch did on the original Enterprise. Like that was amazing, and uh, VR gave us a, a reason to do that to be able to sit there and like you're looking down the panel and you're pressing physically the buttons with your controller. Uh, yeah, that was a new experience. That was as close as I've had in gaming to something that felt new in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm so to steer your answer though. Then it sounds like, do you think you have enough to put it in a completely imperfect term? But do you have enough bandwidth in teraflops? Do you just want more RAM, more than more horsepower? Or do you think the CPU is good enough? Because I think in a next gen console, you would say, well, look, it'll probably be the CPU is better, the GPU is better more RAM, which one of those would you emphasize? Oh, wow. I have to see where the bottleneck comes, right? And, and luckily, hmm. I, luckily, 
I am not the optimizing team, luckily. Um, sometimes I'm asked to, to uh, give up some of my budget if estimates weren't uh, right somewhere else. Like, uh, hey, you know, you get X uh, milliseconds to render your particles, but wouldn't it be cool if we could make this other hypothetical thing happen? We tone this down, give this part of the budget over there. But I, I'm definitely not the person that has to fret over mm -hmm. if we can make this thing work. But that does happen. Yeah, I, it's I, interesting, though, because I, I was expecting more consistent answers from developers. And I expected everyone to say more RAM, frankly, because this generally only doubled RAM. But, and usually it's way more than that. Right. But it's funny, the Sony Santa Monica guy said he want, he wishes it had 32 gigabytes now and he'd love at least 64. But then I had Brian Heemskirk say, eh, just give me more teraflops. And I've had other people say, hmm, eh, just need more storage, you know? So it doesn't yeah. seem like it's a universal thing this time, whereas before it was always, hey, look, the CPU on the PS4 is too weak. <laughs> you know, you know stuff like that. We're at a point where the bus speeds are so high and your storage is so fast that while your storage is nowhere near ramp speed, you can shuffle those cards around now in a way that you never could before. So mm -hmm. it's just not as... Okay, and I, I'll be eating these words in a few years, I'm sure, when there's something I really want to do, I can't. But I don't, sure. see, it, I don't see it right now as, a, as any looming sort of Damocles problem. And previous gens, was it more obvious early? Like oh. than it is this time. Just PS2. To put things in PS2 was the one. PS2 was the one where I felt it because the promises were massive and we made plans. And this was way before my time at Ubisoft. We made plans based on promises and 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 uh it just was not there. Like huge, huge scaling back of things happened. Oh well, the PS2, uh, yeah. It was yeah. it was cheap, but it was it was pretty weak compared to like the Xbox and PCs. I mean, PCs at the time were so right. much stronger. It was really what I'm talking close. before the before the Xbox even came yeah. out. That that time period we were, we were developing for the, the PS2. I and, see. And right away it felt weak. <laughs> right, it was like this isn't this isn't it, right? Like <laughs> this isn't this isn't the thing. This isn't what we were shown. Yep. And that did not feel that way with the 360. You, there wasn't like no. any, like, even though it was just, and again, it looks hilarious now, but half a gig of RAM, you were like, yeah, plenty. Right. Well, especially okay. since it, especially since, uh, you know, as far as I knew, it had just gone up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so I'm sure, uh, you know, again, I wasn't involved in budgets there. I'm sure there were studios across that weren't just the, uh, the studio that we talked about pushing for it that were like, oh, thank goodness. We can, mm -hmm. we can breathe. Well, let me start transitioning then into some final kind of just random developer questions that I, okay. I think some of these are really interesting. And the first ones, you know, are mostly about feedback. So The Remedy writes in, he says, hello, Tom, and welcome, Keith. My question is about how developers see the current landscape of game feedback. Right now, with the recent Battlefield 2042 beta, there has been a lot of hostile feedback with regards to some specific design features of the game. Many people have also come to defend the developers, though, explaining that old builds released for a game beta are inevitable. This is apparently due to how segmented developer teams can be. Now there needs to be a choice on when to cut off active development for a certain build, which is true. Anytime a demo is shown at E3 or something, that's like a vertical slice. They need to then freeze their development of AI, everything. It really is. I guess what I'm saying is he's not wrong. Like it really is like an outdated build anytime they do a beta. Having said that, I 
I'm going to be speak for myself here. I feel like that excuse is used a little too often, but um, can you all at all elaborate on how beta builds for a game are determined and some of the nuances? And maybe share some of your thoughts on how game developers and gamers can better communicate with and understand each other for the betterment of the industry. And thanks for coming on the show because I've noticed a lot of developers kind of ruin a game when they take too much feedback. I think there's a certain amount where you need to know you need to know what people want more than they do. Like that's what made you successful in the first place. No one told you to make a game. You made a game you knew would be good. Right. I, I, that last statement I think applies far outside of games in general to you know product makers in general. If they they hit that home run, nobody asked for that home run. That's why it was a home run. It's like I didn't know I mm. needed this. This is fantastic. But as far as beta, uh, the and and what what constitutes when it's time to call it that, like I'm going to put on the old man hat and be, boy, I remember or again, before my time where I'm at now, Mm -hmm. um, betas were like an internal moment where we knew we had content complete, but we're not done yet. This is full of bugs, may not be balanced, but that's okay. Nobody's going to see this. We're going to sit here and, and turn these screws until this is ready to be seen. And we're, we're not in that place anymore. We're in a place, actually a fabulous place, where there are rabid fans that want us to succeed. Mm. And again, again, I can stop saying us because I'm not really talk, I'm talking specifically about this, this 2048 question because that's great that it's framed outside 2042, of 2042, how dare you get the year wrong? I'm, uh, I, haven't played a, I haven't played a battlefield for a long time. Um, yeah, the, the industry's in a, a great place where these this team has fans that want their stuff to be great, are waiting for it, are clawing mm-hmm. for it, and want whatever they can get their hands on. And I, I could see very easily how it would happen where all of their desire and expectations for what is coming are focused on the state of this slice. Um, and I think if you zoom out, it's a cool problem to have. You have people that care like that. Um, and I, I'm sure if you zoom out further, you'd see that this this vocal chunk of people uh, will be quite ha- have had this before and, and and had stuff work out and had the final product come closer to what they were expecting. And like you said, there there's cases I can think of games that that I wanted that that promised changes that that didn't show up. That the, mm. the beta was was pretty close to what you're going to get. Um, I think. We're, we're probably ready for some language changing because beta was supposed to be, you know, comes from internal development lingo and, you know, we might need to, to establish some new verbiage for what you're seeing, whether you specifically, I, I'm not even going to, I'm probably going to accidentally pull some verbiage out that, that uh, is being used somewhere and somebody's going to think I heard something. But yeah, some of this communication stuff, they probably need to come out and say, we would like to show you this to demo this, this, and this specifically about this. So you get a taste of what's coming. We want to hear what you say about it. And we may or may not take your feedback because you may not realize why. Because there's so much other stuff that, that's still coming. Or because of the limited scope of this, this uh, chunk of the slice of the experience, the reasons for this may not be apparent, but um, the, the verbiage of... of Beta itself, I think, is a little bit loaded in people's mind because they might be thinking that it's something it's not to some extent. And, and again, verbiage, it's something different every time. 
Because like you said, sometimes it doesn't change. I was going to say, like, because I, I think it depends what you mean. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think back to really old betas and like even alphas I played. Like, I think with the game Mag, it was clearly pretty much done. They just had mm -hmm. to do radical rebalancing of like where machine gun nests and stuff were right. placed because they're like, you just can't win this map. I mean, we need right. to fix this. Right. <laughs> like, but that was none of the guns or balancing or class systems really changed to my knowledge. And that's because they were feature complete, basically done. But then I think there's other games <laughs> and, and, and I just feel like developers, if I'm going to be a little critical here, can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, this isn't done, and then go, oh, we released the exact thing you played. <laughs> it right. turns out we were, we were actually so close to launch that this was done, and we said that because we didn't want you to not buy it. You know, And right. I don't know which way it is with this new Battlefield, because, for example, I played it, and I actually felt the playability was better than any Battlefield beta I played in a very long time. So I thought the playability was there, but like they just didn't have classes really. They just had these things called like specialists. And I was like, what are you doing? And it's not clear if that's going to be in the final game or not. But that is one of those things they can, it's that's pretty radical to the gameplay that they can change before launch. Yeah. It's, and it's fascinating watching it as someone I haven't, I haven't worked on a, a, massively multiplayer I feel like, okay i'd be careful of that verbiage because that's going to mean mm -hmm. mmo stuff to people but a large popular anticipated multiplayer type thing in a while but we're talking about how complex games are you're now when, when you're talking about a game like that you're talking about now we're putting servers network load all this stuff into the equation which is something how do you simulate that without running something like this without running a, a beta or a test or we want to call it so if you have to do that, you might want to leave the door open for tweaking things. I, but then you Maybe gotta, it should be done like months before launch if you really think you're testing major systems, in other words. Is that, I, don't, I don't know if that's enough time. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's enough time. But yeah, this is, this is kind of a, a, a rock and a hard place thing with a, a game like that that you need to get into a large number of players' hands to make sure it works the way you expect it. I mean, I guess to drill into kind of one of his specifics, though, I, is there any insight you can give as to why certain, like, my understanding is that when they're doing a beta, the game's almost done usually. Like, the maps are done, the guns are done, the teams are done, and they're like, we need to test it, both the servers and the mechanics. So what we're going to do is pick one of the maps, maybe two, and we're going to give it out for free. And we're going to pick the physics and the vehicles that we can fit into a package under 20 gigabytes, perhaps. So it's actually downloadable for everyone quickly. And then you're going to be able to play it for these hours on these nights. And at a certain point, how many months before the beta comes out, do they just have to stop? Is it like a month? Like, so in other words, is the build people played for Battlefield 2042 a week ago? Was that a build from a month ago? Was this a build from July, June? Like how, like, when do you cut it off and say, this is the beta build? This is what we're going to use. I think, again, that comes down to your reason for putting it out. Is, it, is that a, a showcase for you and your team? Or is that something you need to see the results of to then go and know what you need, still need or don't need? Like it, The reasons behind putting that out are going to be different based on the game. Mm -hmm. It's so, it's so non-universal. Uh, mm-hmm. 
so not universal. And again, I, I, I've worked. It's on... hard for you to guess then, right? Because oh, it could being... be a th- it could be a three month old build, or it could have been just in two weeks they took a map and put it online. Basically, it, it, it could have been that day's build that they were working on the night before. It could have been something that they personally tested for a month. I, I, I there's no way for me to know. I, I would just encourage all fans of all these games to just keep in mind that the reason you're being asked to play this could be numerous. There could be a million mm-hmm. reasons why they want... There's a reason why you're getting to play it before it's it's not called alpha or beta or test, public test server or whatever it is. Because they need you to do some stuff. They need to know if this is what they thought it was. So... This, I think, also transitions into the next question here. So Type2501 writes in, and he says, Hey, Tom and Keith, I'd like to ask for some insight about the unique situation of game development that leads to so many delays and mishaps despite the best effort from the devs to do good time management. I work in theaters where no delays are allowed. Improvements can be made after the premiere night, but when the house is open, everything has to be there and work. So we can only plan accordingly and improvise when we have to, but we have to improvise if we have to. I'm in no way suggesting game devs are not always working as hard or nor as smart as anyone else, but yet it seems to be impossible to accurately plan a development from the beginning to gold. What are the unique difficulties you guys have to overcome that makes this so hard? What is the most common source of delays and changes of plan? Sorry for such a long question. And thank you again for Tom and the guests for making this podcast possible. And I want to preface what, you know, this question, or I guess add on to this question. I had, again, I brought him up, the guy from Sony Santa Monica. You know, we talked about God of War. And I, and, and I brought this up in the podcast that I've talked to people within Sony on good authority. They really thought God of War was going to come out in 2021. They really thought it was. <laughs> like, and yet it was delayed. And most people thought it was going to get delayed. And they insisted to me, no, it was going to come out in 2021. I know everyone said there's no way it will. And then it didn't. But, you know, if if people can guess and get a delay is going to happen most of the time correctly, like, at what point can we just not plan anything? And, and, that, and that means if all games get delayed, then that means there's something systematic that's causing all games to be delayed because it's consistent. You know, and this is a question I keep asking developers that I have on, like, why are all games delayed? What's going on? If, if you can predict that all games are going to be delayed as someone sitting on the outside, then it's frustrating for gamers because then you go, well, if we can always know it's going to be delayed, why internally doesn't everyone always know it's going to need more time? Well, I mean, if, you, if you knew it was going to need more time, then you'd also have to know how much more time, right? Mm-hmm. So if you knew it was going to need some more time, you're going to plant a new flag in this like moving amorphous thing, it's also going to be wrong. But uh, you know, uh, to, to uh, pull a phrase that was stolen from a, an author, and you'll recognize what I'm referring to, but the unknown unknowns, Mm-hmm. You, you can't know the unknown unknowns. And I've every delay I've been a part of, you know, across 25 years was different than the, the delay became that was from the project before that. It's it's the unknowable unknown unknowns, whether it's as simple as, you know, and this, this goes back to that first PS2 title where we got to a point where we had our systems in and we're flying around and this is what we envisioned. This is the game we envisioned. We're flying around on these dragons riding mm-hmm. around as Ozzy and it's brutally frustrating and not fun. <laughs> it's just not. So what do we need? Uh, lock on missiles, but they're, they're, they're dragons. Don't care. 
we need lock on missiles because that'll make it fun. And damn it, if it didn't make it really fun. But that's the thing we didn't expect to develop. That's not something that we knew was coming. It's an unknown unknown. And a brilliant designer realized that it's pretty easy to strafe and tag if we put in a tagging system, but it's really hard to stay behind somebody long enough to, to claw and grab them um, with a, a really uh, simple mechanic addition to this game that we didn't schedule for. It's going to go from on time and not fun to really fun. Like, that's just one of those unknown unknowns. You can't schedule for that. So if it usually takes a delay, though, and it's an unknown unknown, I guess, to be fair, one thing I'll notice is that games are not being announced ahead of time that often anymore. <laughs> like, it's basically yeah. like half a year before they come out because everyone at least is aware of that. But still, do you think maybe developers should just give themselves consistently an extra half year to what they think? Y even if, you know, like literally work as hard as they can, say this is when it'll be ready three years from now, and then say just give it an extra half year. And maybe just publishers should accept that from now on? Or do you think... This is just always going to be in an amorphous release date industry. The number, the num, the the hard numbers on the stuff that I'd be speaking of change every generation. So I'm not going to give any hard numbers, but there is a math to securing shelf space and pressing uh, discs from your your various console platform holders. Like things have to be set up with dates. We're never going to get away from that. That's just a mm -hmm. thing that has to happen. You have to get in a queue that, hey, we're going to have a thing done. Um, if you don't do that, then you're going to be sitting with a finished product and then getting in line to... It's just, that's that's not feasible either. Um, I think just, I think, honestly, I think we're getting better and better, even though, you know, from, from your your perspective and, and other perspective, it's a endemic delay thing. Um, from what I've sat and watched from inside teams for the last 25 years, we're getting better at estimating stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, it, whether or not that translates to what uh, other teams and other companies uh, communicate with their marketing, what their marketing tells them, I, I have no control over that. But I do know internally to the teams I've been in since 1998, uh, We've gotten a lot better person to person being able to communicate how long is this going to take you and and building a plan and hitting that plan. And it's it's uh, you know, early on in my career when when especially when we're going from literally 2D games, we're literally just it's just sprites. Mm -hmm. The first stuff I was doing, do you remember the, the flick file format, FLC? No, I don't. Okay. Well, like all the art was crammed into essentially a movie file that each frame was referenced in the design doc. Oh. But yeah. It was it was it was totally different universe. As we switched into to 3D, mm -hmm. like there was no way to estimate anything. Like nobody knew how long anything was going to take. Uh, internally, teams, every generation, every studio I've gone to, gotten better and better at that. So where the disconnect happens past us, uh, I'm not really sure where the buffer time or pad time could be added on that side of things to make unknown unknowns less of a problem for the consumer. But uh, it's kind of just a point that people feel like that's uh, a to-be-expected thing because I feel personally on teams I've been on, we're better and better at that. And we've had 
uh, especially as a, as some as someone who has had more experience every every year, uh, better at me and and my teammates calling out the wait a minute, we didn't include this. Wait a minute, last time, and last time might have been a decade ago. We had to account for this, like the the um, the generational knowledge yeah, of the industry itself. Knowledge. Is, is coming to put where it exists. Whereas, well, and starting- it's more consistent because that's an interesting point you bring up. You know, I feel like now, finally, since the past 10 years, we're maybe past 15, we're on a consistent 3D type of game and file mm-hmm. systems, even universe of what a game is. Right. Like games were radically changing and even what how they ran. Now it's like, okay, we, we generally know. So now there's finally like you say some generational wisdom that's going on because games are actually being made the same way for more than a decade right. which is an interesting point i mean games weren't even made the same way with similar teams yeah. since pretty much the 360 era basically again halo right. was made in a year i mean right i mean i'm not sure how entirely fair that statement is. the ga- the game concept and and what you did in the game sure. yes but i believe they were showing off the uh, like the rts version of that game before then uh, as a Mac game, right? That yes. engine, yeah, yeah. I think so in like '99 or something. Yeah, so there's some underpinnings. They they had a a nice platform to sprint from, um, to but even even then, what a triumph! I can't say enough about what they did with that. But yeah, the uh, the first the first few years of my industry experience, every project almost did, had let me bring almost nothing with me. It's just mm-hmm. so different. Every approach to how we do things was so radically different. But uh, industry-wide best practices, basically, are becoming more and more the norm. And uh, if we were trying to do, if the industry was trying to do games as big as they're delivering now, without that stuff that has built up over generations, I I don't know how you'd schedule anything. We have uh, young developers going all the way up to people who have more experience than I, and the, the, the... the wisdom going back of that's not as easy as you think, or uh, we need to test this idea first separately in a white box, uh, knowing that we need to prove something before we pin the hopes of this whole branch of the game on it. All these things is I'm not say new, but it wasn't there when I was starting. That I think we finally got to a pretty satisfying answer to that question, then, which is that. You are getting better at it. It's always going to be harder than other industries, but at least we can agree that the industry hasn't been the industry it is for more than 10 years. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I think you melted that whole thing down in a few sentences very well. All right, so let me move on to some final questions here then that really don't fall into any category, but I thought were good questions. So Clean Sweep writes in, and he says, Hi, Tom and Keith. Just a quick question about the UI in games. How much of a nightmare is it to design something that needs to be legible and scalable across an insanely variable set of screen sizes, even though there may not be tools to allow for proper prototyping before implementation and almost no QA testing will be done on some of the, you know, I guess, more rarer screen resolutions and larger screen sizes. It seems to me that in an era where customizable UIs are becoming more of a thing in some games, the industry doesn't really actually do a great job of figuring out how to accommodate the wide variety of set of scammers have. Never mind actually accessible issues like text size or anything like that that isn't a color grading option. Okay. UI is it's definitely a science unto itself. Um, 
at it, at, and it's all kind of individual to users as far as how much you want to even notice the UI is there. You know, some people have, I've, I've seen campaigns against the minimap, but that's almost an aside there. Um, UI, as far as it, how much of a nightmare is it to design something that needs to be legible? Designing a UI to start with is a, a kind of a nightmare because at the end of the day, you're covering up your window into the world with the hopefully the bare minimum of what you need. Mm. But it also, you kind of want that you want that UI to be instantly recognizable as that game. Like I, I feel like um, the teams I was on first started talking about this with Metroid Prime because that screen. You, you, any, any frame of a playthrough of Metroid Prime, you knew that was Metroid Prime. That was that kind of thing. So you want to be able to have inject style. You want it to be themed. You want it to be the right tone. And you want to be usable, accessible. And to throw that monkey in the wrench, we're in an era where not everybody's running on a 4x3 CRT. And now we're not just running on a 16x9 LCD. It, there is a wacky and wonderful world of resolutions and proportions out there. Um, at what, and I've worked on, there's, I'm sorry, I'm, my brain is swimming with a lot of factors here. Uh, there was a time when I was working on a project a while ago where we experimented with actually eye tracking oh. to see how people were using UIs and how often they would dart to one corner or the other and what, they were actually looking at what they would notice uh, mm-hmm. if 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 uh, coming out of a color spectrum to to show something was actually useful. And um, there is a lot of science and effort that goes into all that. It's really hard. We learned to do the right thing for everybody. And mm-hmm. like he was mentioning, the the future of customizable UIs. And we talked, gosh, it could be an hour ago at this point about. Uh, uh, preferences carrying across multiple games and tailored experiences, that might be one of those things that absolutely falls into that, that, that category of, uh, you know, you boot up your game and, and it knows you're a large type person. Like I'm, you know, I'm, my eyes are aging. I, I prefer, I enjoy some nice large text fonts. Um, but accessibility wise, I, I definitely see a, a, Sorry if there, there's some very specific issues that, that uh, this person hasn't has run into, but there's so much more of a focus on that than there ever has been. I know mm. it might be, um, you know, a color grading option might seem like uh, a gimme. It didn't used to be there at all. We didn't. I, I remember a, a time when when I first saw that in a, a design spec, and I was like, "Why? Why are we?" And it hit me. Wow, half the effects I'm doing aren't showing up in any kind of contrast against the back. There's, there's more we can do, <laughs> but yeah. Um, and then, you know, my, my son's friends, I didn't realize it till later. They're literally playing old games. I worked on that. I've dragged them through and I find out they're colorblind. So yeah, I, I realize that that's, that's a thing that, that you can always do better on. You can always do more on, but we're doing, I feel steadily like other things we've talked about steadily better. Um, the fact that we have, options at all obviously it's never enough if people aren't, don't feel accommodated but gosh I just, it's so easy to just take a few years step back to where that wasn't in design specs at all across the industry 
You know, what I would say is it was just, I want to say about five years ago when 4K really started to become somewhat of a standard and half of the games you booted up, the text was the size, was microscopic because <laughs> for oh, some yeah. reason they only could render text up to like 1080p or something like that. And now we have much more scalable UIs for higher resolutions. Although, frankly, I think a certain amount of that, though, is just, I think developers just assume everyone's above 720p or above 1080p, and that makes it so much easier. I know that on some older devices, like my mom has this ancient iPhone. When she pulls up the YouTube app, she can't even see more than like the first three words (laughs) of a video on a list when she's looking to click on something. (laughs) And the pictures, you can't even make it out anymore. But that's because they've updated iOS so much that they're just assuming you have like a 4K screen or something around there or 1440p or higher, probably. You know, like how much of this, like the weird screen size options has gotten better just because you guys kind of assume everyone's at 1080p now? Well, uh that that has helped and there's also the factor of you know going back i remember when the font for the game mm-hmm. was on a 512 by 512 with transparency and, and not you know uh, uh, a multi trans multi transparent set of transparency it was a, it was a hard alpha transparency on off like this is the size of the text that will pop up basically yeah, and, and on what we would we used to i don't know if it's still i don't know if it's going to mean anything anyway we called it alpha test um, it, it was not a soft edge transparency. It was an on-off transparency. And if you scaled those, they looked horrendous. <laughs> yeah. Just horrendous. Um, and because it was a palleted texture, uh, it's, it's not going to dither the colors. So those are times uh, the, that you, you just wouldn't want to scale your UI at all. At all. And then run the fact that the other bitmaps and stuff were low res and don't really hold up to scaling. And plus you didn't have hardware like really good hardware scaling in the the console to start with etc um but then there's the 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 changeover and i i haven't done ui specifically recently enough to know if, if what the standard is now but i'm sure the horsepower is there to if not doing it getting closer to direct rendering spline based fonts right and if not directly rendering them runtime prepping them from their source to the resolution you want um that i mean we've all we all have uh, zoomed in on a, a web page and you know the difference between text that's baked into a jpeg and text that's being rendered in the browser that crispness that's the difference between uh a font that's being rendered and a font that's being displayed in an image and that's what it used to be and still most of the stuff is is a baked down texture of your font being plopped on the screen uh, letter by letter in the game. And that's what, that's kind of where your scaling limit is. If it's, if it's mm. technically sprite based, there's only so far you're going to blow it up without it looking horrendous. <laughs> Which I've, I remember that was another thing. Some games, the font and the prompts would scale well in 4k, but then they just look <laughs> hilariously bad. But now that right. we moved to like an entirely different system, it's really just not, I'm guess it's not, it's the UI itself is a lot of work, but then scaling it isn't as much of an issue anymore. I guess, 21 by 9 monitors probably throw a little bit of a wrench into it, right? But uh, I, I, just, I can't imagine on some of those, I haven't played on one of those ultra-wise, but literally turning your head left and right because your mini-map's over here and your, I don't know, ammo or gas or whatever's over on the left, um, that's got to be a, quite an experience. Um, I, I, if that becomes the standard, and, I, and you would know better than I, is that, is that, does it feel from a consumer level that's where we're heading? Is 
ultra wide stuff? It's funny. If you would have asked me that a year ago, I would have said maybe. But okay. sitting here in 2021, almost 2022, mm, all of the newest 4K gaming monitors, 1440p gaming monitors, the overwhelming majority aren't 21 by 9 still. And I don't see the consoles changing that anytime soon. I think what I would look for as an early indicator that that's going to become a standard is LG says, hey, our new OLED for 8K TV is 21 by 9 or something yeah. like that. I haven't seen... Because you would think this would fit, this would be better for TVs because movies are twenty one by nine more so than it is. But I'm I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing phones move to twenty one by nine right. because that makes them thinner. But I think that's a different circumstance. So all I can say is I think it's here to stay. But I think where it's at now is probably going to be where it's at forever. Where sixteen by nine is the standard, and twenty one by nine becomes a mainstream, almost mainstream alternative eventually. But I don't see it being the standard just yet. I, I think I completely agree with that. I, I'm a fan of the 16 by 9 because I sit there and I, I might watch a film on here, like you said, but I'm also going to sit down with my, my tablet and draw and I, I don't need it. I, I don't draw giant landscape-sized stuff. I, I, like, I might want it portrait. I might want it landscape and I want the real estate high and low as well because um, I'm not just consuming on this monitor. I'm also creating... So I hope it doesn't go away. I hope you're right. I hope that's uh, going to be a dual <laughs> You're asking because you don't want it to go away. Yeah, I, I like it. I like, and I also was happy to get rid of 4x3 because as a cinema fan, that, that was too smushed laterally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think what we're going to see is more and more laptops experiment with more 4x3, 16x10, because if you're on a laptop, you open it up and you might do word processing work. But then I think there's going to be the ultra-wide monitors for people that want that all-encompassing view. And in fact, you said, oh, I don't know if I want to look at the mini-map on the side of the screen. I think some people with ultra-wides kind of like that because they see it as immersive, almost like they're looking down in the cockpit and seeing the map off to the side. Now it's not encumbering their main vision as much. You know, so I think it's just for a type of person and they don't probably see that as an issue, but the game has to do it correctly. I, I love many maps for the record, but I've, I've read numerous screens on how it's time for the mini map to die. But it wasn't until you just mentioned that, that I just kind of hit me that not only is this, this, um, this viewer commenting on, you know, what, what are we, what are we doing to make these things scalable and adaptable and all uh, some of these, some of the stuff we have slowly pruned over generations from UI could come back and not be obtrusive in a new wider standard. That's kind of a neat thing that I, my brain is now mulling over. Like, what, what did we decide we didn't absolutely have to have that we can now have back? That would be kind of neat. Exactly, right? And, you know, yeah. like, and I guess it would be a failure of a, or unideal if a game for some reason in 21 by 9 mode <laughs> it just right. rendered the mini-map in the center of the screen still instead right. of off to the left. Right. Like, then you go, okay, well, that... But I think most developers know to not do that, although every now and then you see, you know, things pop up. Um, Travis Gooding writes in, and he says, are there any primary and or support studios you'd love to work together with that you haven't had the ability to before? For example, I heard Capcom was thrilled to work together with Sony's VASG and other so Sony Santa Monica mocap stage for RE8 and EA used uh, VASG for EA used VASG for Call of Duty. Well, probably not for Call of Duty. You probably mean to see, say Battlefield. Um, but yeah, so like, are there any teams like that that you've worked with or that you want to work with? You know, because there are a lot of, there's some cross-pollination here. There, There is cross-pollination. Um, in, again, I, I'm going to, 
we're not one studio where I'm at now. So Mm -hmm. we do have teams all over. And I do get excited when I get to work with this team again, or I get to use this mocap stage, or I I do, but it's, it's still very internal because we, we have variety and diversity, both location and, uh, makeup of the place and their specialties and i don't have access to it all the time it's when i need it so i get excited about that like oh we're gonna bring these people in we're gonna it's so yes but not the way those people are doing it okay i was gonna skip but you brought it up was from pollard Mm -hmm. which is uh, the differences in strategy between how companies reveal games now. And I think I am going to paraphrase it here because I think we've been going a while, but Pollard basically asks, what has been caused this change in excitement in revealing games? And I I think I know what he means. He's kind of saying, was there a big backlash to like how Watch Dogs was shown and the game a lot of people felt was different than what the trailer showed or for other games like the Division reveal trailer and the game was really quite different. Because it seems like now there's more of a list of game of stats that they show and then a small trailer, and there's less of this big bombastic reveal. Like, is that because the reveals weren't working well? Or can you speak to that at all and how games are kind of rolled out? I can't speak to the part of why certain things were made and then the perception that they aren't now as far as the reveal real terms. I, I'm going to agree I read this question and there's a lot of stuff I, I just can't touch in there, but I will right. say I also loved those reveal trailers and several of those, well, mainly uh, the division. I, I wasn't on that from the beginning. And then I got the privilege of getting to touch it at a certain point. And my introduction to it was that trailer and boy, did it get me pumped to work on it. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to be able in case, Anybody who worked on that trailer hears this. Thank you. That was that was what I needed to start that that whole thing. That was awesome. Um, but now I'm not I'm not aware of any strategic change. And if I was, I obviously couldn't talk yeah. about it. Um, that's not again. Mo- I'm thankful that marketing does what they do, and I'm doubly thankful I don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, and I don't want Pilar to th- feel like I didn't try to ask the question, but it's like. Mm, I feel like there's only something you can speak on, but right. it, he does he does bring up a good point though. That is true. I remember like the old E3. This is the division, and then it's just ah, that doesn't yeah. really happen as much anymore. Yeah, does I don't. It? I don't think. I think he's he might be onto something, but I think he's might be targeting it too narrowly. If he zooms back and look at E3 itself, mm-hmm. and the idea of these big conventions, uh, that seems to be changing too. That seems to be changing too, um, because information flows so easily now. We don't need to necessarily gather everybody together and have these uh, take your opportunity and hit the home run marketing moment thing now, because we can, we anybody can access their audience much more easily than they used to be able to. So maybe there's a change that has to do with that. Um, I'm not sure, but I. Uh, uh, Certainly not sure specifically on anything. I can. I, I'm. A, I don't know of anything. And on top of that, you. We all know I can't say it. I did, but I don't. Um, yeah. But, but I it was think, fun though, right? Wasn't it on E3? So though they just had those big reveals one after another, and it's like, oh, who won, Nintendo, Sony, or Microsoft? You know. I I had the the luck and privilege of going to the 
GameCube, GBA. I forget what else revealed that E3. I was at that one, and mm-hmm. they had a full half pipe indoors with Tony Hawk and Bucky Lasik. And I hope, I hope, I hope Bucky was there. I remember him being there, but you know how memories are. My brain may mm-hmm. have filled him in, but I pretty much the whole Bones crew in my head was there, but it probably wasn't everybody. Um, but in my head, it was. And what a spectacle. And, you know, I, I hear people talking about E3 now. And I'm like, I, I don't see, uh, I, I think that the, the flow of communication and, and, and information has made those events not what they were, probably. Maybe not obsolete, but obsolescent. Not necessary to get right. what you want. I, and, and maybe, and hopefully, we stop worrying about if they're obsolete and just go back to them because they're really Every now and good. then at least, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not feel like we have to make them, not make them feel like an obligation, but feel like a celebration. That could be really great. Yeah. Well, and I guess what I would say to his question too, though, I will add this is people complained you know, is Killzone 2 going to look as good as the tra- reveal trailer? You know, is Watch Dogs going to look as good as the reveal? Or, uh, you know, I mean, people complain enough. They're like, you're right. We'll stop doing it. <laughs> well, that's all of the main questions. I mean, the only other thing I would bring up is, let me see here. I have one more question to round it out. But before I get to it, just is there anything else you would want to talk about? Because we've been going for a while here. I understand if the answer is no, that we'd want to talk about that we didn't cover or like, or, or, or like, even let me ask you this, like, what's one thing most people get wrong about game development? Like, I think that's a good question to ask everyone. I, I think one of the themes of a lot of the questions I, I struggled to gracefully work through uh, the idea that we're aware of everything going on at all times and just how compartmentalized some of this stuff is and how excited I also get when I get the copy of the game I worked on because I haven't seen all of it yet. I haven't mm-hmm. seen, you know, if there's pre-rendered cutscenes, I probably haven't seen any of them. Um, I'm not working on them anymore. And those, those folks have been working on them pretty close up to the end too. And there's, it's 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 a celebration for all of us too, and we're often just as excited as you are to see all of our work finally come together. Um, I mean, not saying that nobody's seen it, uh, and this would be a good time to to, to shout out just what a fantastic uh, and and important part QA is because they they have seen all of it. But you can tell, <laughs> tell from my maybe dog, too much so <laughs> right, but but me who who is just trying to get through my my task list and get through the QA bugs coming back on the work I did. Um, I don't, you know, if, let's say it's a short game. It's an eight hour experience. I don't have eight hours to do that every day to go through the, I'm working on my task list. So to get to go through that stuff, uh, sometimes we're just as excited as, as the, the, the fans and the customers are to go through that. The best example was when I was working on Far Cry 4, we worked on some very specific parts of that. And I never had time to even go through the, the single player part. I wasn't working on that. Um, and I got to see some of that stuff for the first time. It was just amazing, amazing experience to, to see how all of that came together. Yeah, and I think that's something people lose sight of, that anyone who works on anything, everything is so complicated now. Everything mm-hmm. takes so much work, not just the games, but the hardware themselves. Like, like 
for exa- the example I, I was talking to you earlier today before we started recording, like an example I would like to give is, you know, like when I'm doing leaks about the consoles and the hardware in them, you know, some of it is Microsoft, for example, has done a full hot chips presentation where they break down every little piece of the silicon. So we know pretty much everything about that. But Sony's pretty holds things pretty close to the chest. And that even people that I know that are contacts at AMD do not know every part of that APU. And I asked one of them recently while I was working on a leak, like, you know, is this how the PS5 works this way? And he was like, I honestly don't remember if exactly it has that function or if this part has that. And this was someone with direct work on the PS5 APU. Still didn't know if it had this one feature or if this feature was at this level. You know, like the same goes for games. Like not every game developer knows every part of the game or why it works that way. And or even what's in the consoles. Like you may not know every part of what you're working on. You just know that we're getting this much frame time if we do this. Yeah, and I'll, I mean, I fully admit some of these, some of the amazing questions that you came from your, your viewers are above the, the the level of knowledge I have any need to know about on on a day to day basis. That it's just I you know, my my tool. The fact that my tools run on uh, a setup that predates this this console generation. I mean, granted, we're only so many months into it, but still. That hasn't changed. I, I just can put more in, more and better in, but it does not directly affect my day to day life. The the um, the fact that that what I'm working on as a small cog in uh, is a much bigger uh, feat and a much bigger presentation and a much bigger uh, technical feat. At the end of the day, you know my 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 need to interface with with the silicon like that is just not huge. Yeah. So I get, I think, and I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is an important point. A lot of people miss about game development, just how small of a slice each person's working on. And I think that leads to a lot of misconceptions. Like, Oh, why couldn't he answer this? It's like, well, cause he couldn't, <laughs> you know? And, um, and not only like, and not only couldn't I necessarily, but if I had heard that answer and there's, there's been some stuff that's gone by that like, Maybe and like I, if I just hold on, I, I wanna, that answer that I might have had, that could be easily wrong by now. Like stuff is so fluid that if I'm not involved in it, I don't have my you know my my hands in it day to day. That's that stuff is so fluid and it's so in motion, it's so changing that uh, why why even attempt to to plant a flag in an answer that I don't want to miss misspeak. Let me let me move on to the final question then. Uh, Jemunin writes in and he asks, Hi, Tom and Keith. I'm currently a fresh college student and will be starting game design next semester. I'm curious to what your thoughts are regarding game development with AI assistance being a possibility in the future. Any trip, also, any tips and tricks for starting out in this field? So I guess he's asking two different things. How will AI and machine learning assist game development moving forward? And then also, hey, he's just starting out, you know, like what, what can right. you give him for this career? This is well. Hey, this is this is actually when I was looking at some of the stuff we were talking about. This is when I was excited about um, not the one. This is one of the ones I was excited about because this actually has changed so much in the last twenty five years. Because twenty five years ago, I would say get your uh, degree in the specialty, whether it's the computer science and engineering, whether it's the art degree, you know, whatever it was, do that. 
get that to a point where you can show that you are a master of that because you can't show uh, game development mastery. But now mm. you absolutely can. You can go grab, I'm not going to put uh, an endorsement behind any one, but grab any of the engines that are out there, grab a sample project, and then depending on what it is you want to master or show your mastery of, make that your own. You know, if you're an animator or a modeler, whatever your thing is, take that and run with it in that sample project. Um, and you're going to learn so much just getting it to work, let alone making it amazing. You can, you can do that. And I'm not saying doing this instead of your, your, um, your college course, I'm saying supplementally and bounce back and forth from what you're learning at school and what you're doing in, in on your own, because you're going to learn things that you, you, unknown unknowns. You're going to find out what they're not teaching you. Mm -hmm. Ask those questions. And learn how to solve unknown unknowns when they pop yes. up. Yes. Yes. And, and you can bring that, those into the class and maybe, you know, through, you know, take advantage of that resource at, in school in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise, if you weren't pushing it to the limit at home. Um, but, you know, the, the difference between now and 25 years ago, you can, you can enter the workforce ready to contribute to a team in a way that you just couldn't before. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then as far as the AI part, I think uh, I can't speak for every aspect, but specifically animation, uh, I've seen some SIGGRAPH presentations on what is being thought to be, uh, thought of being incorporated into animation with AI where uh, you'll be able to input a gate, uh, by gate, I mean a, a style of walking, uh, you know, how, what does this character look like when he's walking? What does he look like when he stops? How much does his weight shift? And using AI plotting footfalls across mm. a massively uneven terrain and um, incorporating other little style clips the animator provides, like, okay, if he gets off balance, I want, I want him to, to you know, grab his chest. And, you know, the, the, the style and the flavor is still coming from the artist, but interacting with the terrain on the animation side uh i've seen experiments with ai use for that that is exciting in ways i didn't predict like we're talking about stuff like what are we going to use all this horsepower for that is like i, I was mm. trying really hard not to pick the bones of this question earlier that's part of why i was kind of just hemming like do i do it do i blow this guy's question up but yeah that is one of the places where i think we can we can do some new stuff so we'll use the new horsepower for all these really, really specific micro actions that we couldn't do before, but AI's allowed us to put together algorithms to show it all, right? Because you can't just like animate every square inch of a tree, but you can't have an AI, you know, put together some stuff that allows the game to know where to put it on everything, right? Or, or uh, I'm trying to think of a, a good example, you brought up tree. So let's say you have a character that's, that's going to climb this tree. And mm -hmm. right now, uh, you might not have collision on any branch smaller than X or Y right. and, and play play a climbing animation. And then maybe on a few big branches, you have a nice uh, uh, flavor animation of a reach. Mm -hmm. But maybe a generation down, however long down the line, uh, you've got a base climbing animation. You've animated a few flavor reaches and some you know exhaustion rests. And AI is going to, plot and path and bend animations and, and 
and know to reach around because arms can not just certain like ways. collision through a branch, but know exactly even little branches how to like snake your arm through it and stuff. Yeah, or and pathfind mm-hmm. the way because uh, I remember uh, watching a presentation. I don't know if it was it might have been Miyamoto himself talking about it, but some of their goals back on Mario sixty four. One of their goals, one of the reasons they had resisted doing it, and one of their goals was not to have Mario look dumb running <laughs> around, right? So their controls and and getting the bins in and 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 uh, the they didn't the, their goal they spent so much time on the movement and the interaction was was to make him look and feel like Mario when he's doing it and not hey it's a three D character that's a model of Mario. I, I think that is that ne- one of those next steps is those animations are eventually going to be more than just playing back animations. It's going to be animations as the seed material for the character and what makes their motion special. But yeah, AI, I can see plotting intricate paths through brush and knowing when to duck without having some kind of specifically scripted event. Like the animation AI will, will see that collision coming and then decide how surprised they are by it. Was it behind something else? And we're going to play the oh mm-hmm. version of the of the, the duck. I well, can yeah, see some of that. Yeah, you think about characters as they're like crouching to stealthily go through a bush and like instead of just, let's be honest right now, most of the time clipping through the bushes right. and gamers have just accepted this in their brain. That's how it's done. You know, you could literally have the brush perfectly move across the materials on their vest and like their hands actually literally push a specific leaf and push it out of the way. You right. know, like it's not just like you know, canned hand motion leaf moves. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's like literally machine learning has allowed us to have all of these combinations from any direction it can do it. Yeah. And is that is that PS6? Is that further down the line? I don't know, but we were we were trying to mentally go through possibilities of the future. And I think that is one of the possibilities. Right. And my last guest was an AI guy getting into the field of AI research. And he explained how the neural engines actually interface with that, like that a, a CPU does something really well if it's a perfect answer. The CPU says, do this, it doesn't. A GPU is good at solving a list of things that are the same over and over. Mm-hmm. A neural engine can solve like a trillion operations instead of a 30,000 that a GPU can do, but it's not the perfect answer. But if you solve a trillion operations, you can say 99.9%, this is the answer. So... Okay. You could do that where you have a neural engine and it's like, I'm going to touch this bush. You take the bush polygons, throw it to the neural engine. It solves a trillion operations. And it's like, this is how their hand would touch it. It's not perfect, but it's 99% perfect. It looks a hell of a lot better than their hand just clipping through the bush. There's that. And then there's like specifically with that being absolutely how I think of it as well in, in the animation world, I kind of liked the noise in that system where it was wrong and then we can have that moment where the character reacts to it being wrong and replants the hand. And that will look <laughs> incredibly naturalistic. Like getting that wrong once every 60 times, great. Then just don't hide it. Just have the neural engine yeah. go, oh, I got it wrong. And we'll make the character yeah. human. We're not perfect. Right. right. Yeah, that, that, see, that's fascinating. That is a fascinating look at how things are about to change. And again, I think to the listeners, hopefully, how much work goes into just doing that, you know? Right. Um, that's that's yeah. why I like pre- pre-production too, because these are the kind of like conversations I like to have pre-production. And, you know, every we have all these things that in some tiny percent we carry along as this, this is something we're going to incorporate. But 
like I like these these far flung like someday that way you can say we've been talking about this for ten years. It's time to do the cool I touched the tree wrong thing. So yeah, um, the only other thing I will tie in here is to what you first answered, which was getting into you know how to get into game development. What you said about just building the whole thing yourself and getting good at it. It's pretty much exactly what the Sony Santa Monica guy said. (laughs) He was like, he went to college and his friend just started making gun models and got a job making the gun models. Maybe you don't Mm -hmm. need to do one or the other, but make sure you're actually doing it yourself too on the side. Right. Um, And and I, I, I think I said it, but sometimes I forget. I, if you don't, if you're not interested in making the entire game, even just taking one of the classic known sample games and elevating your specialty part of it to parts unknown to make it yours that's valid too if you don't want to make something from scratch you know um, i i put ai in half-life 2 that is significantly smarter than what was in the base game and look it works right that kind of thing and then package that up either in a link or bring it with you on a, a, a to a convention like how we met um and you have a basically proof that you not only can do the thing, you can do it functionally in the format that they're going to want you to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think that was a fascinating place to end this conversation. And we've been going for <laughs> a very long time. I don't want to take up any more of your time. You know, thank you for coming on. I mean, is there anything you want to plug? You know, sometimes I have YouTubers or podcasters on and they'll plug their podcast. I don't know about you, though. Maybe you just plug Ubisoft or something. No, well, A, a I'm not here representing anyone true, or anything. Uh, and B, I am basically a super introvert and I have no need for it. This is an unusual <laughs> event for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I met When I met you at the Carolina Game Summit, it struck me as just a really cool, really cool human and you're super nice to my son took time to check out his work and like well yeah i'll absolutely talk to you because and then i didn't even realize uh what a a far reach you had until you made me a new friend at work i i was sitting here um, what (laughs) yep maybe a new friend at work i want to make sure and shout out to ivan who messaged me goes hey you're gonna be on tom's show and uh, like well now i know you you're my i just i told him well you're my friend now so yeah we started talking made a, a a new new friend at, at at work through this this interaction well, that was cool well yeah i mean in uh to learn more about how games are made <laughs> and hopefully right. the conversation's interesting for enough people to listen to it that it can be a job you know and it it really is rare to get game developers on like you for whatever reason maybe it's because they're introverts i don't know but i mean it's it, it really is an asset to have this conversation because there are several conversations we just had that I haven't heard anyone else have online. And so now people know how something works that maybe they didn't before. But I'm sure there's a lot of reasons for that. First, it really is a minefield uh, to, you don't, you don't want to, um, you don't want to get out over your skis about anything you're currently working on. So that's why it's very fastidious, you know, mm. about all that. Um, but luckily I've, I've been doing it long enough that I had enough examples pre anything I'm even touching now um, to hopefully shed some light on some stuff and, and hopefully get some, you know, more and more talent interested in doing it. Because mm-hmm. like you said, I, this is certainly not a, an industry that's going anywhere anytime soon. We're, this is going to be the, one of the main entertainment forces for a long time. 
Well, now they're using Unreal to make uh, the Mandalorian, so gaming's even encroaching into. <laughs> well, yeah, you know that's it. Doesn't even have to be interactive. Any horse, I guess, technically that is interactive because it's it's still you know the it's not a a, a, a um, somebody controlling the game character, but that camera is still giving feedback to the way the world is moving on those screens. It, it's still kind of the same process. Because you know you you remove the camera down to track Mando walking across, and that background is parallaxing behind him on those big screens. It it's still doing game engine stuff. Hmm. Um. Anyways, then again, thank you for coming on. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed it, and I guess we won't plug anything, but uh, I'll just give you an extra thank you. And um, yeah, thank you to everybody for listening. I hope that hope you enjoyed it. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan. Audio editing by Gerard Cortez and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Mellon, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Mohamed Akwari, Frederick Lau, MetroCore, Justin Paris, Zachary Martin, Terrence Harris, Drita Full, Phil S, D31337 Antics, The Ninth Duke, Jesse Jaskowiak, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Deezru, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Co Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Matthew Landavazo, My Name is Nobody, Judson N, Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Ivan214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rauner, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Allie Robinson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan. 
Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Anthony Gareffa, Joaquin Hagen, so- Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., C. Jitz, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Zuzu Taylor, Trevor Powers, Stuart Lenyon, Nanyan, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Frederick, Dan Galinowski, Ian Clifford, Axel Cisnero, Leighton Perry, Joseph Kerman, Brett Summers, Blake, Denovan Russell, Noah Nicolella, Zlicky, Martin Porcheggi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Ulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoas Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Brucha, Jeremy So, Mitchell Pell, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castile, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Two Twenty Three, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valcom Alev, Gabe Langner, Ronnie Kaliik Souza, Michael Deaton, MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Sarcastro, Mai Sharona, Y Truly, Roman, William W. Draper, Air Rats, Wakir Khan, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amy Cheap, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, R. Pete Sharma, Meat and Pork, Jimmy N.G., Mads, Gordon Freeman, Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wazink, Sam Benzel, and thank you to Sahara for the music. 